This episode of Tales from the Backlog is brought to you by the wonderful patrons over at patreon.com slash realdavejackson who help to support the show. These personal heroes of mine include Chris Nelson, the top three podcast crew, Zol Geek, Eric Guess, Rick Firestone, Nick Ficori, Jill, Soccer, ZNA, Cupcake, Kyle, Christian S., Matt, aka Stormageddon, JD, Doug Leaf, Jason Emery, Rob Shack, and many more. These fine folks have chosen to go over to patreon.com slash real Dave Jackson to kick me a few bucks a month and help support the show. In return, they are getting some cool treats like being able to vote on games to appear on the show. The next poll will be coming up soon, so look out for that. They also get bonus episodes and they get my bonus retro gaming series called Tales from the Way Backlog which will be coming out with a brand new episode in a few days about Castlevania II Simon's Quest. If that all sounds good to you and you want to support your favorite podcaster named Dave, once again, that's patreon.com slash realdavejackson. With that being said, on to Baldur's Gate 2. Hello everybody, my name is Dave Jackson and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog. This is a video games review podcast where each week I'm joined by a guest to bring a game out of the backlog, play it, and discuss. My guest today is a friend of the show, co-host of Pixelated Playgrounds podcast, and miniature giant space hamster enthusiast, Brian Skirsha. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you, and uh, I suppose butt-kicking for goodness. Yes, also uh, <laughs> something that you're enthusiastic about, correct? Yes, I, I'm always butt-kicking <laughs> for goodness, you know. You find me out on the streets, butt-kicking for goodness. Oh, yeah. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Baldur's Gate 2, but before we get into that game, I do want to give you the customary time, since this is the begin- This is the first time you've been on the show, to talk about your podcast, Pixelated Playgrounds, and what it is. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, Pixelated Playgrounds is a video game book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. Uh, it's something I say all the time on that show, and uh, those listening to this podcast are definitely familiar with that concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's myself and two of my fellow co-hosts, my friends Clint and Josh, uh, uh, longtime friends of mine. Josh is also an indie dev in his own right, and we talk about games as old and long as Baldur's Gate and new and short as Little Gator Game, to name two that we've released this year. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we usually re- release about two a month. None of us are you know, journalists or critics by trade, just guys who are talking about video games who would be doing so without a mic. Uh, anyway. Yeah. And it's a really good show. I mean, it's I invite lots of podcasters on who do shows similar to mine, because that's the kind of shows I like listening to as well as making, right? So the kind of the thoughtful approach, the analysis uh, that you all put into uh, your episodes, I really, really enjoy it. Um, we're you. doing our Baldur's Gate 2 episode today. I recently, li- by the time people hear this, it won't be so recent, but uh, you, quote, recently did an episode about the first Baldur's Gate game, uh, as mm-hmm. we're all gearing up for Baldur's Gate 3 coming out. So it, yeah, it, it's a show that I really enjoy. Like I said, that that thoughtful um aspect to it the thoughtful aspect and approach to um the games that you talk about it's it's a it's a show that i listen to uh, whenever i see it pop up on the feed 
And uh, yeah, a easy one to give the, the recommendation at the top of the show. Oh, I appreciate that. You know, we, we try and do that. Um, but uh, for what it's worth, yeah, you, you caught me at the exact right time coming off of, of BG1 and playing BG2 for <laughs> not only our own podcast, but because, as you said, Baldur's Gate 3, it looms. I'm really excited. I have a lot of history with this uh, franchise and um, really looking forward to that one, but uh, always looking for an excuse to replay Baldur's Gate 2 as well. Hell yeah. Well, let's uh, let's dive into Baldur's Gate 2. So this is uh, talking about the base game, which is subtitled Shadows of Om, uh, mm -hmm. an RPG developed by BioWare and published by Interplay for PC in the year 2000. Uh, also, I guess we'll be talking about the Enhanced Edition because that's what I played. That's when you replay it. I assume you're playing the Enhanced Edition, right? Oh, no, no. I busted out my, uh, you know, CD spindle <laughs> of six uh, CD-ROMs that I exactly. definitely still have a CD-ROM drive on my PC. Uh, no, absolutely. Enhanced right. Edition all the way. <laughs> and uh, the Enhanced Edition uh, was developed by Overhaul Games and published by Atari in 2013. Uh, so I played the Enhanced Edition on Switch. Did you play on PC or somewhere oh, yeah. else? Yeah, PC. I, I When you told me you were playing on Switch, one, my first thought was, um, wow, I, I admire you for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. These games always sort of have lived on PC for me. So that's just um, where I will always play them. I briefly tried to play Baldur's Gate uh, to Enhanced Edition on iPad once upon a time, and I couldn't even do that. So mm -hmm. now the, the mouse and keyboard for me was a, a requirement for this one, especially given what a long haul it is. But um, I'm glad it worked out for you on the Switch. Yeah. Uh, like I said in the, the first episode about the first game, um, it's it's a bit clunky. It's not as uh, efficient as playing on mouse and keyboard for sure, but it definitely works. I got through both games. It's totally possible. Um, nice. If you have not played Baldur's Gate 2, listeners, uh, with, this is the standard spoiler policy for the show. In case this is your first time listening, the way it works is we're going to go as deep as we can without any spoilers for a while. And then we're going to warn you when the spoiler wall is coming. Uh, and then after that point, it's full spoiler talk. It might not even be in chronological order. So just uh, get out at the spoiler wall if you want to avoid it. Down in the uh, episode notes, the episode description, whatever they call it, there will be a timestamp for when that spoiler wall is. So if someone is listening and they don't know what Baldur's Gate 2 is, we've prepared some elevator pitches. And my elevator pitch for Baldur's Gate 2 is to continue your adventure from Baldur's Gate 1 uh, where the adventuring and butt kicking for goodness gets turned up to 11. What would you say? Yes, uh, my elevator pitch is what left off with the ball spawn reaching the status of a hero continues with some world-class adventuring and a brush with divinity. Okay, awesome. Hell yeah. Um, this is quite a long game. I played on Switch. My playtime was about 40 hours for the main game, and I did the Throne of Ball expansion. 40 hours seems very short for all of that. And there's a reason for that. It's because I played on story mode, which I will get into that later when we talk about gameplay. But even playing on story mode, even skipping some pretty substantial side quest material, still 40 hours. It is not a short game. No, I, I totally hear you on that. It is, it's definitely an epic. And especially with that Throne of Ball expansion, for what it's worth, um, even playing, you know, uh, I played on normal mode. I did not play on core rules. It's worth mentioning uh, when when we end up talking about difficulty modes that this game is different from the original versions and that those ones did have you play on core, which means like a lot of the dice rolls for things like hit points and um, some of the uh, things that you would automatically reload if you got a crappy roll on um, mm -hmm. 
<laughs> were were the default, right, in, in core rules. On normal mode, uh, things like hit points are maximized automatically. So you don't have to do that annoying quick save, quick load thing. So oh, okay. I'm playing the... Yeah, it's it's weird <laughs> how they just sort of changed what the default mode is just because they knew what players were doing with regards to, you know, saves coming. But of course, I think it makes yeah. sense personally. <laughs> um, how, how long would you say a playthrough takes you since you're playing probably a more intended experience? Yeah, so I'm looking at my Steam right now. Um, I logged about 60 hours for my my playthrough of uh, Baldur's Gate 2 and Throne of Ball. So that's, yeah, a little heftier, probably, you know, one and a half times what you did. But again, I'm playing also with the benefit of, like, knowing exactly where to go for things. Um, mm-hmm. This is one of those situations, like, you know, from my perspective, like a Dark Souls or something where knowledge compresses space. And you can yes. get get a lot out of just knowing, like, oh... Um, there is this guy in this house who has this really good sword. So I'm going to beeline to that, merc this dude and and take his great sword. And now Mm -hmm. I'm going to make the rest of the game a lot easier for myself. Okay. Um, kind of along those lines. So you have experience with this. So tell us a little bit about your history with, um, the series and maybe your history with D and D. Oh yeah, <clears throat> definitely. So I uh, I played Baldur's Gate one originally, um, probably a couple years after it came out around the turn of the millennium, and um, right after that, uh, as soon as Baldur's Gate two came out, it was one of those things that I I needed to pick up. I wasn't like as tuned in to go like pick it up on launch day, and also I was a teenager, so I didn't have the money to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I was introduced to the first game by <clears throat> my cousin. Uh, second game, I came in. Uh, pretty hot on the heels of its launch uh, as soon as I could save up enough money from uh, either caddying or some other, you know, odd job that I was able to cobble together in my youth. But um, uh, I played it that back then in its original form, uh, played it uh, and got stuck around the uh, Throne of Ball, Yagashura area. Uh-huh. And then later on, I replayed it again. Um, after college and that time i just got distracted by something else and didn't finish it so you are actually talking to me after my first official finish of Baldur's oh, Gate yeah. 2 plus throne of ball okay. so um <laughs> that was that was a trip for me this is one of those things that has been a long time coming so long history with the game but not a long history of actually beating it gotcha yeah it i can easily see how this is one of those games where you spend a ton of time in and just you don't get around to finishing it i've <laughs> i've played 80% of Fallout New Vegas twice. It's just one of those games long time in those. I I love I love that game too. Just never beat it. Uh shit happens sometimes. Um yeah. If uh if people listen to the first Baldur's Gate episode on Tales from the Backlog, you may know that this is my first experience with the series. So I played that game for the first time and then I took a break to play another BioWare game, Knights of the Old Republic. And then I went back to Baldur's Gate 2. I wanted to take a little break. It's weird that I went to another Bioware game in that break, but <laughs> there we are. Uh, so I, I'm playing this for the first time. Um, and it, it's funny, like, I wanted to try the series before Baldur's Gate 3, because I love Divinity Original Sin 2. It's one of my favorite games ever. Oh, yeah, same. Yeah, so I, I'm like, well, I'm going to play Baldur's Gate 3, because that's Larian's new game. So I want to play the older Baldur's Gates. And there are a bunch of people that were like, oh, just skip Baldur's Gate 1, play Baldur's Gate 2. <sighs> absolutely and not. Absolutely not. I'm so glad that I didn't. <laughs> but like Baldur's Gate 2 was kind of the target the whole time, if that makes sense. like Yeah. You know what's funny is my yeah. my co-host Josh said the same thing. He said Baldur's Gate 2 is the one I want to play. I'm playing Baldur's Gate 1 to get there. Right. And 
to my mind, playing Baldur's Gate 2 without one is like watching the Lord of the Rings film The Two Towers without watching The Fellowship of the Ring, you know? Yeah. Like, it is very much there. It's it's a requirement, and, and it sets the context for the whole thing in such a great way. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that was what I said on that episode, too. I'm glad that I ignored the people who told me to skip Baldur's Gate 1. I mean, if someone's like, I don't have time to play both games, then sure, maybe. Like, read what happens and then start. But like, yeah, sure. I did have the time, so I'm glad that I did play both games. So here I am playing Baldur's Gate 2. And uh, to get into some quick opening thoughts before we really dig in, I I had a bit of a a weird experience with this game. Like I said, I played on story mode out of necessity. Uh, So (laughs) I did feel like I missed out on part of the experience here. I, I think this game's really good. I'll just say that like straight up. I think in some ways, this is the best Bioware game I've ever Mm. played. And I've played quite a few of their games. Um, And I also just think that like, they didn't make this game for me. Mm. And because I don't know anything about D&D. I mean, I know, like, I've osmosed some things about D&D, but I don't know how to play second edition D&D. So uh, I, have, I, I have an interesting anecdote about that. Um, yeah. I have. I did, at one point in time, play second edition D&D. Um, okay. My pod- <laughs> podcast co-host, Josh, actually was a DM for me and a few of my buddies, and we played, I think, a grand total of two sessions of second edition D&D when we were in like sixth grade or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so if you can count that, then yes, I suppose I have experience with it. Um, sure. I also, I played a lot more fifth edition and by a lot more, I mean like three times as many sessions, maybe a total of six. Yeah. So um, I don't have a ton of D&D experience either. I guess we're both coming from it from that lens or at it from that lens. Yeah. And um, I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but I think that like, I think that there's a bit of a failure on my part and there's a bit of a failure on the game's part. And we just, there was no meeting in the middle uh, as far (laughs) as like learning the rules and learning how to actually like be successful at this game. So story mode helped me see the story, experience the adventuring, which I think is great. Um, Mm -hmm. And I came out of it thinking like people always hold this game up on a pedestal as one of the best RPGs ever. And while I didn't get like the full experience, I get why it's up there for a lot of people. Yeah, I'll say I'll say something about those um, second edition D and D rules because they are very archaic, and um, I didn't, you know, I wouldn't say I learned that from my two sessions of playing Dungeons and Dragons. I learned it from being a twelve-year-old playing Baldur's Gate and bashing right. my head against it for an entire summer, um, <laughs> because that's what you do when you're that age, right? You have right. a very plastic brain and you have a lot of free time. So you learn very complex things that maybe you, (laughs) that maybe you don't need to, or maybe shouldn't invest the time in. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I I still feel like it was a fun experience and I'm glad I did it because I can come back and do this now. Um, But yeah, it is not user-friendly. It's not accessible. And if you don't have a history with it, there's going to be a difficulty cliff that you have to scale to get to a point where you're fluent in these, these mechanics, you know, like Thaco is not an intuitive thing. AC, uh, you know, all of the rolls and saves and um, the entire library of spells this game has and throws at you. And mm-hmm. all of that is a requirement in this game, especially in throwing a ball to understand. Yeah, agreed. And we're going to dig into that in a lot more detail when we get into the gameplay section of this uh, episode. But for now, we're going to take a little music break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the story in Baldur's Gate 2.
So continuing from the events of Baldur's Gate 1, if you played Baldur's Gate 1, you can import your character into Baldur's Gate 2. And it's important. I think it is important if you do do that, bring your character along, unless you really hated the way you built your character or something, uh, because it is continuing the story of that character. And it's kind of unavoidable if we're going to talk about the story here. We're going to talk about kind of the end of the story in Baldur's Gate 1. Um, you learn that your character is the spawn of the god of murder named Baal, which again, best uh, best god to be the god of murder, at least the funniest to me right I now. I mean, it, it certainly justifies all the killing you do in this game, regardless of yeah. the fact that you're, say, maybe a lawful good paladin. Right. It's... Um, <laughs> For all of those uh, Ludo narrative dissonance uh, examples where they're like, oh, well, why is Nathan Drake killing 7,000 people throughout Uncharted? You don't have to ask that question about your character here. You're the spawn of the god of murder. I mean, he's a ball spawn too, right? Nathan Drake? I always assume <laughs> Probably. That. Yeah. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe killing Nathan Drake was part of that side stuff that I skipped. Maybe. <laughs> um, this game uh, begins with a little um, shock because uh, there is a kind of filler expansion between Baldur's Gate 1 and Baldur's Gate 2 called the Siege of Dragonspear. And I did not play that. And I also told myself I was going to read what happens and then I didn't. And then at the beginning of this game, you go from your victory at the end of Baldur's Gate 1 to waking up in a prison, a dungeon. A dungeon is a better word for it, uh, run <laughs> by this mage named John Irenicus who is a complete scene-stealing villain of of all-time renowned in my regard. <laughs> yeah, uh, John Irenicus is a really good villain. Um, he's out of the picture for a lot of the games, but you do get like these scenes of what he's doing while you're doing what you're doing. And mm -hmm. I was um, glued to the screen during those scenes because he's up to some some evil shit. Yeah, he uh, just a great villain. Like He has a, a really involved backstory and and his motivations are sort of slowly unfurled over the course of the game john irenicus it's worth mentioning his voice actor is uh excellent as well and i'm trying to search my notes here for the name there we go david warner uh who does just a fantastic job of um voicing john irenicus is just chewing the scenery with regards to this voice acting performance yeah there's a lot we would just talk about the voice acting for a second. Um, the voice acting in this game and the first Baldur's Gate game, uh, this is, I feel like from the era where voice acting in video games was like people doing theater performances basically. Mm -hmm. And this game is full of those, uh, people giving the, like not a lot of nuance to some of the voice acting, just people going full go for the gusto performances, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing is like not everything in this game is voiced, right? So they're picking and choosing the scenes where they do it uh, and where they do it, they need to make it count. And so they're, they're given 150% or more uh, in, in every scene. And I, I think, you know, a lot of these voice actors are good. They bring back a lot of the faves, you know, you're, we already talked about some of the characters that you're uh, remeeting, you're, you're importing your own character, but you're getting your, your Minsks, your Jahiras, they all mm -hmm. uniformly do great performances. There's some new, new folks in the mix as well, who also, by and large, I think the the bar is pretty high. You know, there's a high average on this uh, this group um, and the party members that you can get. But Arenicus, I think I think tops the the field here. Yeah, and part of what makes Arenicus uh, interesting is the way that like so the game starts. You're in this dungeon. Uh, you're able to get out through the help mm -hmm. of um, your 
sister figure uh, named Mon. Um, yeah, she helps hey, you uh, out. It's me, Mon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you get out of the dungeon and you get into a like a mage fight because Mon is a mage and Irenicus mm-hmm. is also a mage. And it turns out that the city that you're in, they don't take too kindly to magic around these parts. And so <laughs> Irenicus and Imowen get kidnapped basically by these uh, mage hunters. The cowled wizards. Yeah. And you have to like, you have to get information because uh, they just leave you with that. You don't know where you're supposed to go. You don't know where they are. You don't know how to find them. You don't know who knows where they are. You just kind of like left there and then some dude is like well if you give me twenty thousand gold i can i can help you out and so that kind of kicks things in motion to gather that money yeah i love i love this setup because you know you you wake up as you said you're you're in a dungeon you have to escape you know it's sort of it's a really great opportunity to one um tutorialize you know your first dungeon you're learning all of sort of the basics of dungeoneering uh, if mm-hmm. you say didn't play Baldur's Gate or if you didn't play far into Baldur's Gate because now you're a seasoned party of like level 7 to 9 adventurers yep. right that is a big difference from where you're starting off in Baldur's Gate 1 um on top of that you've just been tortured so you might have a slight case of amnesia and we like nothing better than starting a game <laughs> with a slight case of amnesia here in video game right um, mm-hmm. gives a good excuse to tutorialize to the player as well um, it's all very elegant. And then the coup de gras, of course, chapter two, you emerge from the dungeon and they say, find Imowen, like you said. And how do you do that? Um, well, you do what adventurers do. Yeah. You raise some money, you do some side quests <laughs> and it, it's, it's really interesting. Like this, this game has not like weird pacing, but chapter two is like much bigger than the other chapters in the game. Uh, mm-hmm. There's 10 total if you go through Throne of Ball, and Chapter 2 is by far the longest. You could spend dozens of hours just doing the quests here. Yeah, I would say it's almost sort of an hourglass shape, right? Because you have Chapter 2, which is super wide, super long, and then it narrows down for those middle chapters. But then, um, as we'll talk about, Chapter 6 brings you back out into that area, and you know, then you're preparing for the end game. And at the end of the day, I think that's really like kind of the interesting thing about this game's structure is it it will let you spend as much time as you want sort of being an adventurer, and it gives you just so many different options to pursue in terms of how you do that. Yeah, and when we say you're doing side quests, I don't mean you're doing like gather 10 herbs or like (laughs) gather five piles of dirt uh, for someone who needs it. These side quests are detailed. They have twists and turns. They may take hours and hours to complete. They involve like, you know, dungeon crawling in a lot of uh, a lot of ways. The the city that they take place in is super dense and it's full of these things to do. And I just I just think this is like I, I was a kid in a candy store during this uh, this section. So I think the interesting thing about all of the side quests in chapter two is they're basically modeled after Dungeons and Dragons modules, right? Like you can basically uh, look at this and say like, hey, this is a a source pack or a module that you could pick up for a dungeon master to run for their group in Mm -hmm. D&D. So it starts off with like, all right, you talk to this person in the hub city in this game. That's Ethkalta, the city of coin, capital city of of, uh, um, the continent or the country that you're in. And it sort of spirals out from there. Like there's one that'll send you off into the Windspear Hills. There's one that'll send you off into um, the Umar Hills. There's one that'll send you to Tradesmeet, uh, the city of merchants. And they have a genie infestation. Like I, I can I can name <laughs> it six dozen more. And those are three yeah. of my favorites, which we can go into more detail on uh, maybe later on. But 
I think it's just really telling for um, the fact that this game at its base, just like Baldur's Gate 1, is a Dungeons and Dragons simulator. And this mm-hmm. game just takes that and, as you said, cranks it to 11. Yeah, because like you mentioned earlier, you're not a level one character beating up rats in someone's basement anymore. You're a right. capable fighter. Um, if you have mages in your party or if your character is a mage, you're a capable mage by this point. So you're doing things that a very capable character would be able to do. Like there's uh, a, I'm trying to remember what the monster's name is, but like one of the characters you can meet says like, hey, my home uh, manor has been taken over by these uh, trolls. Trolls, Trolls, yeah. yeah. And they're not just regular trolls. Yeah. So (laughs) they, they, they say go there and there's, there's something special about the trolls. You can't kill them by normal means. You have to figure out how to kill them. Mm-hmm. it's a step up um, in like, I liked the adventuring in Baldur's Gate one a lot, even killing rats in the basement because I, I have a soft spot for low level RPG shit like that. But um, <laughs> it just gets turned up a notch in Baldur's Gate two and basically every way. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting because I guess when you're talking about the levels that we're playing in right now in um, the beginning of Baldur's Gate two, we're talking about characters that are in the level, you know, seven to 10, seven to 12 range, really. And we're talking about people who are like catching the eyes of like dukes and royalty and they're sort of regional heroes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, I guess, broadly speaking, you're sort of a, a no, a nobody from one to five, uh, uh, a somebody from five to seven. And then like, you're starting to catch the attention as you continue to climb. And then we'll talk about throne of ball later, but you're really clashing with divinity at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this game has this really nice progression. And I know you mentioned earlier about the ability to import your character. And I think that's one of the really special things about the ball spawn saga, you know, being Baldur's Gate one, two and throwing a ball in general, as you get to see someone go from that like dirt farmer to almost a god or goddess. Yeah, exactly. And again, it's it's like the story will make less sense if you skip Baldur's Gate one, but it really is like the the key thing is taking that character from level one, literally like, hey, my my house has a bunch of rats, go kill them, please, up through fighting against literal gods. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wonderful. I, I spent personally a lot of time in chapter two in, in this game because, mm-hmm. one, I, I had a lot of things I wanted to accomplish. I knew I knew where I wanted to go to get some equipment that I needed for my chosen party, uh, you know, given my, my player character, a sorceress that I imported from Baldur's Gate 1 uh, play that I did in 2000 and... 10, 11 or so, no, uh, maybe it was like 14, something like that. So approaching mm-hmm. a 10 year old character, but still, or it must've been, it must've been uh, 14 or 15 because it was an in enhanced edition because I couldn't have done um, a sorceress in the original versions. That is an interesting thing. That is a class that was added to Baldur's Gate two and you could not play it in Baldur's Gate one until the enhanced edition. So, oh. yeah, it was uh, an interesting playthrough. I really enjoyed being a, uh, taking a spellcaster from, you know, probably the weakest of the week at the beginning of Baldur's Gate 1 to probably the most powerful, the powerful at the end of Throne of Ball. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a fighter in Baldur's Gate 1 because I, I played that game on easy mode. So I was still engaging with the combat a little bit then. Um, but I did, like, I kind of asked some people, I was like, what what's the path of least resistance? And I, I got the <laughs> advice to um, have a fighter so you have some HP and use bows because bows are really fucking powerful, at least in the first game. Oh, Still yeah. in Baldur's Gate 2. But yeah, that was my character. I just continued that character in Baldur's Gate 2 as well. 
Nice. Yeah, that's fun. I, I think the bow, the bow playthrough is one that I have not done, but I kind of want to because there's a lot of great bows in Baldur's Gate 2 and uh, Throne of Ball, and you, you can get some really insane stuff going. I think the just the Thacko bonuses alone and how many attacks per move you get at the end of the day with a high level fighter in by the end of Throne of Ball is just insane. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you could you could really do some damage. Um, that's not to say I couldn't do some damage with the, uh, the old sorcerer sorceress, I suppose that I was playing, but, um, yeah, it was uh, a little more involved and a little more sort of prep heavy, you know, more menuing. Yeah, for sure. Um, we, again, we'll, we'll dig into that when we get into the gameplay for sure. Cause I, like, I, I need to ask you about like, what is it like to actually (laughs) play the combat in this game? (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's a couple other things about the story I wanted to, uh, to touch on. You travel with a party, just like in the first game. Uh, You can have up to five characters go with you. Some of the characters from Baldur's Gate 1 return. Uh, Some of them are in that dungeon with you at the beginning of the game, and some bad stuff happens to some of them. Mm. Uh, And that kind of sets you on a little bit of a revenge path, but also some of your party members who had loved ones who didn't make it out of that dungeon. Mm. And I, I won't say who, but... Um, we've already mentioned Minsk. Minsk makes it out of the dungeon. Uh, so I put together a party. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> I put together a party of um, mostly people that were in my party in the first game if nice. uh, if I had the opportunity. So um, it was my character. It was Minsk. It was Jahira and Nira, uh, the wild mage, who is hmm. um, a new character for the enhanced editions. Mostly mm-hmm. out of familiarity, but also I loved how Nero was introduced back into the story in Baldur's Gate 2, a uh, very wild mage-esque. Yeah. Uh, and then I had new two new characters, one called Yoshimo and one called Anomen. Uh, Yoshimo was uh, a thief-type character because Imoen, my thief, was no longer with me. Mm-hmm. And Anomen is like a, a, I think he's a cleric? Correct. Yeah, cleric yeah. fighter, I think. Yeah. Uh, how about you? What What characters did you bring with you? Yeah, so we had a little bit of overlap. I had uh, my player character, as I mentioned, a sorceress. Um, right. And then I had uh, Aerie, who is a an elven wizard slash cleric. So pure spellcaster here. Uh, fragile okay. as a leaf, but you can do some really interesting things with. Uh, Keldorn, who's a paladin, uh, frontline all-rounder for me. Uh, Valagar, really interesting character. He's a, a stalker, which is a kit for the ranger class. And he hates magic users is his, his sort of thing. Um, oh, fun. Yeah. And then I took Jahira. Uh, she was the only sort of person from my first game playthrough that I, I retained for my second game playthrough. Uh, she was basically my tank. And then uh, at the beginning of the game, I took Jan, who is this goofy, goofy thief wizard. Mm-hmm. He's he's a gnome and he's a very colorful character. Uh, lots of interesting dialogue from him. Uh, turnip farmer by trade, I suppose. His family's big into the turnip market. Um, I don't know if you you had any exposure to him, but he's a he's a hilarious character to have in your party. I'd say probably the one of the more entertaining ones. And I eventually uh, swapped him out for Imowen when you get her back. Right. Yeah. Um, one thing to note along those lines, I'm glad you mentioned some of those characters because I never met at least three of those characters. And <laughs> that is just one example of how big and dense this game is. Uh, there is so much in here. So chapter two sets you on this path to gather 20,000 gold. You'll you'll find a bunch of characters. You'll do some of their quests. 
20,000 gold seems like a lot when you first get it because you're scrounging at the beginning of the game. Especially if you played Baldur's Gate 1. That's like, oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, it's a ton. But I had so much fun doing these side quests, finding characters, doing their side quests, which led to other side quests and stuff like that, that by the time I chose to go ahead and advance the story, um, I had... I had 60,000 gold and I had probably earned close to 100,000 just from doing all these quests, meeting these characters, um, adventuring. Yeah, I was in the same boat. I, I had, you know, if you're doing any amount of adventuring at all, like the, the quest rewards itself will get you there. And then all of the loot you can sell um, from your various adventuring uh, will easily knock you over the edge after, say, like two major side quests, probably yeah. um, in chapter two, of which there are, you know, a dozen plus. Um, so you're not, you're not going to be hard up for cash for long, but there is so much good stuff to spend it on that, uh, I, I stuck around for a while just to sort of pad out my, my hoard of trinkets that I could throw at all of the harsh enemies that I knew were going to be coming my way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one cool thing I want to mention about the characters is, uh, so at the, at the beginning, actually, I don't know if at the beginning of Baldur's Gate two, as I imported my character, I don't remember, do you pick an alignment um, if you start a new character, if you import it, they give you an opportunity to like adjust some things if you want to, but, okay. um, but otherwise they'll pre-populate it exactly as it was in Baldur's Gate one, if I recall correctly. Um, so did you, did you adjust your alignment then? Or I guess maybe this is a better question. What, what, t- uh, sort of alignment of party did you have? It sounds like it was good. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, my character is, was probably a lawful good or some, something close to that by the time I finished. Uh, the reason I brought this up is because your the characters that you take with you care about your alignment and they care oh, yeah. about the stuff that you do. And I think that this is really interesting how, like, let's say, like, an NPC is pissing you off and you attack them and, like, some of the characters in your party be like, hey, dude, what the fuck? You can't, you can't do that. And if they don't <laughs> like it enough, they'll leave. I mean, I was exposed to this in spades because I had a cleric or a, a paladin in my party. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> he is such a such a goody two shoes boy scout that he will sometimes interrupt you as you're trying to uh, give a less than noble answer in result of a quest. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was wondering about like your your party dynamics because I think that's one thing this game really fleshed out compared to Baldur's Gate One. Yeah, um, since we're talking about parties, um, it's only a couple. Uh, hours, minutes before you start getting requests from your party members uh, to do this, that, and the other thing. And I mm-hmm. wondered, uh, how did you feel about that? Because I know there's there's a lot of mixed reactions when you start getting this laundry list of quests in chapter two from all of the tagalongs you pick up. Well, I, I thought it was interesting, like not unexpected because I've played several Bioware games outside of Baldur's <laughs> Gate. So like right. character side quests are something I expect from them. But what's interesting about this, and I actually really like this, uh, is let's say the character says like, hey, my my home estate is under siege and mm-hmm. something terrible has happened to my family. Can you please help me go and uh, find out what's going on and help save my family? And you can say, sure. And then, you know, gamer, you throw it in this, the quest log and then you ignore it for a while. And in this game, that character will say, hey, man, I thought we were going to go to my estate. What's going on? And if you put it off for too long, they'll actually say, "Okay, you know what? I'm going. If you want to come join, come join. But I'm going. So you you took Nalia for a little bit then, I take it. I did. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I knew that one. Um, Yeah. That's. uh, Yeah. I mean, I don't particularly like 
Nalia in general. Uh, but um, I hear you on that. And, and the first time I played, it felt a little, this game, that is, it felt a little overwhelming getting all of these things at once. Because mm. if you're, um, you know, doing what most gamers would do, which is like trying to fill out your party as fast as possible to make sure that you're, you know, bringing all of your, as many swords as you can to bear, then you're going to pick up several characters in quick succession. They're going to give you quests in quick succession. And then all of a sudden you have six people who need you to do something in two days uh, all at once. And you're Mm -hmm. like, oh boy, (laughs) can be a little overwhelming. I think I was a little bit lucky there because uh, if I remember right, Minsk doesn't give you one of those quests. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that Jahira gives you one. Uh, Jahira's is later. Uh, You have to like get into Jahira's later. So it won't happen right at the beginning. Uh, so there's just two right away. And then, um, Nalia actually did leave and I was like, okay, fine, I'll go do it now after she left. And I'm glad I did. Cause I enjoyed the quest. I enjoyed the, uh, the dungeon a lot, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's cool how they handle that. I agree. I, I, I do like that. Like the characters have more agency. Like you're right that that is something that they would have, they sand off the rough edges of in later Bioware titles, but I think it's for the worse. You know, I think giving these characters more agency and sort of having them put their foot down at some point is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something that I think like when we took like the less tutorialization swing back in like the early to mid tens in video games, I would have expected something like this to come back too. Mm. Um, And it did with like Dark Souls and and things like that, but it it didn't in like the Bioware games. And I'm a little surprised by that. Yeah. In, in some ways, like, they gave the player a lot more. They they started having more confidence in the player in that way. But you're right. Like this, I haven't seen this kind of thing in a lot of, and I play a lot of RPGs. Um, yeah. You know, like a, a Final Fantasy party member will never leave because of right. something like this, you know? So it, it's cool. And this combined with uh, the, the fact that your alignment and your actions matter to the characters in your party makes them feel like uh, more like real people than... Yeah, maybe some of your more anonymous um, Final Fantasy party members. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. And I think like the developer having the conviction or, you know, courage and conviction to lock the the player out of content based on the decisions they make is something that so many AAA devs at least are so, you know, nervous to do. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to want to put money where people are going to see it. And I just admire games that like let a pay, let a let a player you know, experience the, um, ramifications of their actions, you know? Yeah. Um, speaking of ramifications for your actions, uh, a lot of this game deals with, uh, what your character's nature is and, Mm. uh, the ramifications of that and what you're doing as that Mm. people who are maybe going to try and take advantage of you, or maybe people who are going to try to kill you because of who you are and what you are uh, as a character. I, I don't think that this story has, a lot of like themes per se that it's exploring, but that's definitely one of them. Like your nature, your choice to resist it or accept it or take advantage of it. And then how other people um, fit into that puzzle as well. You know? Yeah, I think it is. It's like a a fight with your nature thing is probably sort of the main undercurrent, right? Like the, you know, you are, especially if you're a good character, like if you're an evil character, it's sort of embracing your destiny type thing. I'd Mm -hmm. imagine. Um, to my mind, it almost feels a little bit like 
Shadows of Om wants you to be a good character, and then Throne of Ball wants you to be an evil character. <laughs> but we'll, yeah, we'll get into that. We'll, we'll get into that a little more later, probably. Yeah. But yeah, I, I hear you. And I think some of the themes and like interesting stories that this game is trying to tell or lessons it's trying to teach are more self-contained within the sort of chapters or quests or modules themselves than mm-hmm. being sort of more overarching, except for the one that you mentioned, which is to say, you know, uh, chosen ones grappling with their destiny, so to speak. Yeah. A lot of those side quests uh, will have, they have their own mini stories with their own, maybe their own morals, or mm-hmm. maybe one of your side characters is going through something that your character doesn't have to deal with in their life. So yeah, maybe those those side quests do explore that stuff in short little bites, you know? Yeah. They're like parables almost, right? Mm-hmm. And the tabletop nature of like some of these side quests could just be a night playing D and D basically. And whatever mm-hmm. adventures and story comes up with that, that could be one of your side quests. Yeah. I would say it's probably more like several nights, but yeah, I get what you're saying. <laughs> My inexperience playing D and D and how, how long everything takes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that's one thing that's worth calling out about Baldur's Gate and the infinity engine in general is like how simplified it makes all of the the Dungeons and Dragons-iness of this. You know, at the end of the day, this is a Dungeons and Dragons simulator, and it probably hasn't been done as well since. And, you know, the ability to obfuscate away all of the dice rolls and saving throws and, um, you know, accounting for HP and erasing things off character sheets and rewriting it, like, all of that is extremely nice to have done by a computer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's one of the magic things about it, yeah. Yeah, and it's why um, some of these archaic systems like Thaco and Armor Class, since the way it works in this game is not really an issue because uh, the computer takes care of all those um, those calculations. And the computer, when you buy a new piece of equipment, the computer will say, hey, we're going to, it's green now. That means it's better. So put on the thing that turns the numbers green. And exactly. you don't have to... <laughs> You don't have to remember, oh, right, lower numbers are better and all of that yeah. stuff. So yeah, it why, is why good. Is, why is a negative five green compared to a negative three? Ah, who exactly. cares? It's green. Put it on. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, some of that stuff is better for it being done by a computer. I, I had wondered about, like, your experience role-playing in mm. Baldur's Gate because I, I do think that, like, from my limited exp- – I have more experience playing other tabletop systems than D&D, but – my experience tells me that there is way, way, way more combat in Baldur's mm. Gate than there is in a tabletop session. So, like, do you feel like other aspects of role playing get are lessened because of that? I, I would say yes, and I think this is kind of just a a thing for computer based role playing games by nature, right? Like, you're mm-hmm. always going to have fewer options available to you with a computer DM than you would with a human DM, right? Like, right. Um, at the end of the day, you're never going to try and talk to the beholder attacking you in Baldur's Gate 2. They're uh-huh. just going to attack <laughs> you. But that would be the first mode of interaction if you run across a beholder in tabletop Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like, they're intelligent okay. creatures, they often have very interesting you know, self-motivated things. Um, if you are nerdy enough to read through the monstrous manual, you could get an idea of, you know, that's the thing about Dungeons and Dragons is everything is an archetype. So if you run across a beholder, you have a pretty good idea of what their personality is, and you can use that hmm. knowledge to your, your advantage. In Baldur's Gate, 
they're a red circle, and they will use certain attacks that are indicative of a beholder on you, but you don't have the range of non-combat options available to you that you would in uh, a tabletop setting. Interesting, yeah. So thinking back, as far as like monsters go, uh, the only one that would really fit that role is there are dragons that you can either talk to or fight in Baldur's Gate, but that's about it. That's a great example, actually. And you can see those archetypes for those dragons in uh, Baldur's Gate 2, right? So um, I don't know if we're clear to talk about spoilers, but you do run across a, a few different types of dragons, and they do have those archetypical dragon personalities. Mm-hmm. You know, the chromatic dragons are uh, generally evil and self-serving. The metallic dragons are more noble to varying degrees. So um, you 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 have quests that go along with those dragons that are tailored to those types of archetypes. And uh, if you know what you're working with from the outset, you can you can know what's coming. But and I think this game does a really good job of sort of riding the line there. Like it will give you the opportunity to fight all of these things, but in most cases, beholders included, which I mentioned earlier, they will also let you have an opportunity to interact with them in a non-combat way. Interesting. Not my experience with the beholders, but that's maybe because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm talking about like just specific beholders that you'll run across okay. that um, gotcha. that aren't aren't combat related. Maybe, yeah, I'll, we'll talk about it in the spoiler section, perhaps. But I did run across uh, a couple that um, were fulfilling non-combat functions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. As far as other like types of role playing, though, like, do you? Do you feel like there are too many quests or encounters that are like tailored toward putting you in combat rather than uh, like, you know, a lot of other RPGs will give you options to talk your way out of stuff. And this Baldur's Gate 2 does that too. Um, But I found myself in combat like with no other, like not talking to them first, just combat begins in this game, maybe more than in some other RPGs. So I guess from my perspective, this is really more to me highlighted in Throne of Ball, um, Mm -hmm. where a lot of times in Throne of Ball, at sight of you, someone will say like, ah, it's the ball spawn or, you know, whatever your player character's name is and just immediately attack. But I think that's more so a result of your reputation at that point, right? Like you are a continent spanning badass and they know that if they see you, they're in trouble. Um, mm-hmm. So I think from that perspective, it's somewhat justified. Earlier on, like in, in Shadows of Am, I didn't feel that way as much. And I think um, it this game does an interesting thing where most of the placement of enemies and whether they're hostile or not tends to be pretty, I'm going to throw out a D&D term here, Gygaxian, which is to say, if they live in a dungeon, that dungeon functions as its ecosystem and it is sort of logically continuous right like okay. you're going yeah. to find you're going to find a dungeon that is like say a knoll fortress and gnolls are going to live there and if it has a trash heap then the types of monsters that appear around trash will be there um and so like what what a gygaxian dungeon does is it sort of uses monsters that would naturally appear in a setting as opposed to a dungeon that is just like a monster gauntlet right where oh this room we're doing gorgons and this room we're doing um, minotaurs in this room we're doing uh orcs and you know you know just basically throw the hardest possible things at you in every room and there's no sort of logical consistency to why they they are there mm-hmm. and i think throne of ball runs into that a little bit just probably because there's such powerful entities at play that they didn't feel the need to justify it like of course this almost god has a slew of beholders at his beck and call mm-hmm. but 
in Shadows of Arm, at least, I do feel like they tried to make it at least more logically consistent. Like, you'll find Underdark monsters in the Underdark. Um, yeah. Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> well, it's a it's a good point. Like, right now I'm playing Final Fantasy 16, so as a comparison to that, a lot of dungeons in Final Fantasy 16 will be like, okay, the first combat room in the dungeon, you're going to fight four four humanoids. And then the next room you fight four bats and then the next room you fight four humanoids and four bats and it's, it was very formulaic like that i didn't really get that from uh from Baldur's gate so that's a good point for sure yeah it's always nice when like it makes sense that a monster is where you find it right like i really like that i feel like fromsoft does a good job at this and i'm sorry to keep referencing souls um but i i do feel like <laughs> this if, podcast if I, you don't have to apologize for <laughs> referencing souls <laughs> yeah it it just it 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 helps with immersion for one thing, but also like you can start to sort of get the sense for what the world is like. Like if you always find uh, this type of monster around this type of setting, then you're learning a little bit about what that monster likes and what they're, you know, what they feed on or what they thrive in or what they dislike. Um, And you can use that knowledge when you're fighting them. Like it breaks down when you just sort of have like um, a dungeon that it, in one corner you have a fire troll and in another you have like a water elemental it's like wait a minute why are these guys in the same place i'm confused yeah and it it i mean it makes the world feel more lived in more you know realistic in that way but it also rewards you for knowing you know those environments if you say like i'm gonna go down into the sewers in the city if you, you know expect to find mustard jellies and yeah, you know and goblins like, and stuff like that yeah <laughs> right yeah and and i think that's nice like um yeah it, it helps it make sense and it helps it um yeah feel real and immersive and i i generally it it helps with just the general world building and you know it's worth mentioning that we're playing Baldur's Gate 2 a game set in a pre-established settings the, the forgotten realms right, right. right we're on the the continent of Faerun the country of Am the city of Athkelta right like we can go all the way down and know all of these things and if you've uh, read a bunch of fantasy books in your youth, you probably know what these things are, or at least have a passing knowledge of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I would imagine, because it's not me, so I would imagine that a lot of that knowledge about um, the cities, the the politics, the different races, uh, all of that mm. stuff is to your benefit when you start playing Baldur's Gate 2. Yeah, I would say so. Like, um, you know, D&D has never done a great job with like all of these things about like D&D archetypes that I'm talking about. Like nowadays, I feel like that is a thing that is uh, definitely frowned upon. And I totally agree with that. Like every orc is evil is kind of a silly way to think about things. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, um, you know, it is what it is. And that was second edition D&D. So I'm going to let it live. But uh, different time, I guess. But um I do feel like if you sort of grew up with this source material as like sort of ambient things that you were absorbing through either books or something else, then, um, you know, you're going to bring that to your experience and, and that can help you. Yeah, for sure. So another thing that I think lends to this kind of um, feeling of a lived-in world and immersion, if we want to use that word, 
is uh, the way that the visuals and the sound effects are um, in this game, especially in the city. I, I really like um, the way that the city looks, the way that the districts are uh, distinct, um, and the sounds in the background of all of the activity that's going on in mm. these different districts in the city. Um, it really makes you feel like you have come out into uh, kind of a strange new place for me, but it helps all because it's a big city. There's, there's what, six, seven, eight districts, something yeah. like that. And they're all pretty dense. Um, and, but it helps them all stand out. So when someone says like, Oh, you know, over at the docks, you know, Oh, okay. I know where that is. Exactly. Yeah. And the interesting thing, I really like what you mentioned about the sounds and they all have their own distinct sound. Cause if you're in a market, you're going to hear people shouting. If you have a dock, you're going to hear dock workers shouting in the background to unload mm-hmm. things. And even if you're in like an inn and tavern, like, over the din of the music that's playing, you also hear people shouting in the background. And I feel like this is something that like video-games have not always done as well as this. Just to keep to harp on our our new bugbear, um, Final Fantasy 16, since I'm playing that as well currently, <laughs> I do feel like it feels a little dead. Like compared to like the Copper Coronet, uh, I don't think I found as lively a tavern in, you know, triple A blockbuster Final Fantasy 16. And we're working with like a fraction of the processing power and mm-hmm. um, uh, just general budget budgetry in Baldur's Gate 2. Not to say it wasn't an impressive product in its time, but I think they really did something special, as you said, with like the way that they're painting and lighting and then especially sound designing these areas. Um, even the fact that you're looking at it from this isometric view, you just sort of like are enveloped by the spaces sounds and it just really works for me. I don't know why. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And even when you venture outside of the city into the kind of wilderness areas, um, I I think that they all look great. And then you have all the nature sounds playing. It it really makes you feel like you are, well, it's a fantasy setting. So like you're not (laughs) in the suburbs or something like that, (laughs) but you're really out in uh, nature. Yeah, you're hearing those fantasy Volvos drive by and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, no, I mean, I, I grew up in Winspear Hills, so I know exactly what that sounds like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, um, it's uh, it's really nice. And I think the fact that they can do not only like city and wilderness areas in, in equal regard and make them look beautiful as well is impressive. And I think this game goes out of its way, especially with um, some of its character and sprite work to one up Baldur's Gate one in a big way that and the special effects with like spells and things uh, Mm -hmm. you can tell that they're taking an evolution on some of this stuff it's a little harder to tell in the enhanced edition versions because they kind of took a uh, a leveler and you know right fancied up all of the spell effects across the board but by the end of like throne of ball I would say you're coming across like some character designs that are leagues ahead of what you would see with some of the more generic things you saw at the beginning of Baldur's Gate 1. Yeah, I would agree with that. To a point, because the characters, uh, especially depending on how zoomed in or out you play it, <laughs> the the character models that are actually on the screen could be like these little figurines, basically. Mm-hmm. So if you want like that wide view of the battlefield, you've got some ants swinging swords at each other down there. But yeah, yeah I'll, I'll take a minute to harp on the UI a little bit. I think um enhanced edition or not this game's ui is straight trash these days <laughs> like um like I, I don't mind like the character portraits down the right menus on the left thing like uh and you can resize it so it looks natural even on the largest monitor of these days but mm-hmm. um 
the journal is a mess. It's broken out by like chapter and quest, and it's impossible to navigate. The character screen where you level up is just a gigantic wall of text that's pretty hard to parse. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, I think the inventory is still pretty serviceable. Serviceable. That paper doll figurine thing has kind of lived on uh, long past its Baldur's Gate. Um, I don't know if it was necessarily in the introduction, but definitely a solid refinement that a lot of people have copied in in years hence. Mm-hmm. Some of those character screens in the menus for for me who doesn't really know what the hell I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> like when I open the character screen, it's because I got the notification that someone can level up, and then it was like <laughs> you open the character screen, it's like press Y to level up, and I was like, okay, thank you. I so I don't have to navigate all of these numbers. <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's a lot of information on there, and like some of it is useful, like seeing, you know, how many attacks your character gets per round and like what status effects they have and what they do like are it it is useful information, but man, is it presented in an awful way. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, they did the best they could with what they started with. And that is to say like the enhanced edition fixed a lot of things, but you can only fix so much. Um, and having not played any of Baldur's Gate three and knowing that it is working in an entirely different Dungeons and Dragons system, I'm interested to see how they handle that. Um, I have stayed uh, dark on that game intentionally up to this point, and I'm waiting for its its full launch. So I guess uh, I'll be surprised, pleasantly or otherwise. Yeah, same. Uh, I haven't watched a whole lot because I know I'm going to play it at some point, uh, maybe if not at release pretty soon, you know? So generally, if I'm like very interested in a game, I'll just, I'll just cut out. I'm not watching trailers or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So other than the, uh, like the bear sex thing that, uh, that was hard to avoid, but other than that, I don't know anything else. (laughs) It took over Twitter for a little while, so you really couldn't miss it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, one, uh, it's kind of interesting playing the Baldur's Gate games after playing, um, a couple of other really text heavy games in recent memory, Disco Elysium and Citizen Sleeper, who have changed the way that these text heavy UIs look, you Mm. know, putting the text on the right side of the screen, um, I got to say, it's a lot easier on the eyes than going back to all the text in a very wide horizontal box at the bottom of the screen. Um, I like it a lot better the, the <laughs> new way, you know? What, you mean you'd, you'd rather read a nice Kindle-like interface instead of a, a long, <laughs> unending sentence at the bottom of your screen? Um, yeah, if no, you can I'm, believe I'm totally it. With yeah. you. I'm, I'm, t- I'm totally with you on that. It is... Uh, I'm, I think Disco Elysium, you know, I, we, we did a podcast on that a while back. And I think that was something we called out is like Josh and I had at the time semi-recently played Planescape Torment. And um, that game is very text heavy too, but it could benefit mm-hmm. from having a UI overhaul just to implement the, the Disco Elysium model there. <laughs> yep. Agreed. Uh, I went to Disco Elysium. At- no. I went to Planescape Torment after playing Disco Elysium because I read it was an influence and I felt the same way. Yeah. 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 Well, um, uh, influence in, in some ways, but not from a UI perspective. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, I don't really have a whole lot to say about the music, I guess. We're just kind of hitting bullet points here. Uh, the music sounds um, epic when it needs to be epic, and the rest of it sounds like it's it could be the background music in your local tabletop session. I was going to say it, it's very um, it's very play this as you're as you're playing Dungeons and Dragons in a local uh, gaming store or something like that. Um, yeah. it, it, it's serviceable. It, it sets the mood, I think, especially like in those certain settings where we have I think the ambiance does a lot more work than the music. Um, 
yeah the battle themes are good in this game Mm -hmm. they work but really i think where the the sound design in this game makes its makes its bones is in the uh in the ambiance and not necessarily the the soundtrack which yeah you know serviceable and in um minsk screaming during all of my comments (laughs) yeah (laughs) go for the eyes boo (laughs) exactly So we kind of bordered on talking about combat there for a while. So I think let's mm-hmm. let's get into talking about the gameplay. Um, sure, yeah. This is real-time with pause combat. And if you're not familiar, that's uh, when combat plays out in real times. The dice are rolled automatically. Your characters move automatically. They attack automatically. But at any time, you can pause and issue commands. And you cannot stack up commands, but you can pause, issue a command to everybody, whether it's, you know, move over here or use this spell, use this ability, or just, you know, hey, with your sword, attack this enemy, basically. How do you feel about real time with pause before we get any deeper than that? Yeah, so the name of the game is riding that pause button, uh, for me mm-hmm. at least. You know, I uh, I need to be able to make sure like no n- no time is, is wasted, like once a, a fighter, say, kills a uh, a person you need to make sure that they're focusing fire on the next uh, person they need to and with spellcasters this is even more important because you know once a spell is cast um, they're going to default to their next action based on their you know ai script you've given them and that's probably like a ranged weapon so unless you mm-hmm. want your extremely powerful spellcaster to waste time slinging rocks at a, a guy uh-huh. um, <laughs> you're, you're going to want to take you're going to want to take charge all that is to say i tried to get as creative as I possibly could in this game and as uh, liberal with my spells as I possibly could. So I created a few custom AI scripts for all of my people that basically let me play only one character and everyone else kind of did their thing for, I'd say 90% of encounters is is what I would say. Uh, But you really had to know what you were doing in terms of like switching on and off, like the Boolean variables to say like, use defensive spells, use offensive spells. After that, default to a ranged weapon, default to a melee weapon. And it's a lot of, it's fiddly. Uh, but, you know, if you're, if you're willing to put in the time, it'll, it'll save you a bunch of uh, real time with pauses down the road. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I didn't do that. Again, playing on story <laughs> mode. Um, but I'm glad that that does take away some of that uh, micromanagey feel that real time with pause combat can really get into, which is why I stopped playing games mm. like pillars of eternity. Cause I just felt like I felt like I was pausing every half second to do something. And it was just, I got sick of it. I don't blame you. Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, that's to say like in the intense battles, I was still doing that and you need yeah. to do that. And for what it's worth, this game will take it too far at some point. Like, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it in spoilers, but, um, I did not get, get through this game without, um, flipping the difficulty down for some of the final battles. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, uh, it's a lot. And for most of the game, it works. Uh, but then it it feels almost like the game and the Dungeons and Dragons and all the options available and the combat system or situations that they're putting you in outgrow the Infinity Engine, you know? Yeah. So 
I guess I'm going to have to take your word for that because <laughs> I was playing on story mode. And the reason I was playing on story mode, so I played Baldur's Gate 1 on easy up until the final boss, and I had to put it on story mode to beat the final boss. Um, on easy mode, you still have to be aware of what's going on. You're mm. not going to win automatically, not even close, actually. Um, <laughs> but in Baldur's Gate 2, the complexity of the spells and the status effects and the enemies and all of their abilities just far outpaced me and i i could not hang <laughs> and so i had two choices the choices were basically get a bachelor's degree in D or put it on story mode and i picked story mode i think you made the right choice like unless you're coming to this with as you know um retained knowledge from 13 year old play sessions, you're mm-hmm. probably not going to have a great time learning what the Ruby Ray of Reversal does versus the Breach spell. You know? Uh-huh. <laughs> like it is it is just one of those things that like either you know it already or it's too late to learn it. You know, this is one of those I don't know what that is and by now I'm afraid to ask situations. Yeah. It it really got to a point uh where not only do I not know what the people are doing in combat because like uh baldur's gate 2 could be subtitled instead of shadows of om it could be subtitled baldur's gate 2 mage fights and <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> not only do i not know the spells that the mages are casting because the combat log doesn't tell you uh, hmm. i wouldn't know how to counter them if i did know what the spells they were casting did so like if they put up a shield i could say oh okay dispel magic might help me but that's about it and mm-hmm. it's Again, it's either like I can pause the game and go spend 10 minutes looking in a wiki or find the manual online and read it, but I'm not going to do that. I I, <laughs> I kind of like maybe this is selfish of me, but I kind of think that the game should make an effort and this game does not. I don't think that's selfish. And I think um, this game could be better tutorialized, but I think they're they're working from a very different point in time and with a very mm-hmm. different um, set of players in mind than exist for the game in today's day and age, right? Yeah, like yeah. you're 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 probably talking about um, the you the goal for this game was to continue to sell things to um, the audience of a critically acclaimed juggernaut Baldur's Gate, um, right? So there's a built-in audience there, right? Yeah, um, and they know what they know what the the breach spell does. They know what protections it removes. They know what spell strike does and what protections it removes. And and to your point, like you do need to know all that stuff for this game and almost all of its boss fights, because as you said, this is an incredibly mage fight heavy game. Um, uh, for what it's worth, to your point, I also didn't necessarily clock every protection that was cast by every spellcaster. So I just cast them all at everyone. I had three spellcasters in my party. <laughs> I just said, all right, you cast the one that removes physical protections. Uh, yeah, you cast Breach, you cast Spell Strike, you cast um, uh, Magical Thrust or whatever the final one is, uh, and you cast Ruby Ray of Reversal. And so hopefully between the four of those, that person uh-huh. <laughs> has no more protections and Keldorn can go in and kill him. Um, yeah. that was kind of my game plan at least. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it got me thinking like, I get, I get what you said about Bioware making the game in the year 2000, basically. Mm-hmm. They know exactly who they're making the game for. And, you know, I've been on the other side of that where a game is made for me and not other people. And I've been like, well, I'm happy that they made the game for me, <laughs> you <Right>. know, um, <laughs> Wait, I need to know which which game are you thinking of? I, I'm like thinking of like the um the the Souls thing, like sure. when 
when from software games got harder um i'm not like a fan of ball crushing difficulty in those games but like i'm also kind of like well they made the game for me i've yeah i've played four of these at this point i know what's up Um, so (laughs) yeah i think we're in the same boat there like it's not what i go to those games for but i I can deal with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like I that's when I'm on the other side of this, but um it got me thinking in the Baldur's Gate 1 episode uh, also about like Beamdog is remaking this. Hmm. What is their role to teach new people how to play because they chose to not do that. So there's two sides to that coin. I think what we are neglecting in this discussion t- to to this point is the fact that this game still has an incredibly active and vocal and passionate community that exists to yeah. this date. And there are right. people out there doing like solo hardcore runs with, you know, one character um, mm-hmm. and just sort of sitting down with a spreadsheet and figuring out what the exact perfect character that will allow you to make it through this game doing just that on hardcore mode will be. Right. And to be frank, they're catering more to those people than they are to you. <laughs> I'm sorry yeah. to say. <laughs> well, I mean, I that's that's the that's a conclusion I came to as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I can't really fault them for that. I, I, like, there are there are people who are going to buy the enhanced editions as a curiosity because, like, they've heard a lot about it, um, and they will either power through it or bounce off it. I personally agree with you that I think they could have done a better job with tutorializing all these things, and they especially because they added a bunch of content of their own. I do not understand why adding an optional tutorial was not among the things they chose to take on, you know? Yeah. And instead, uh, from what I've heard, bundling the game manual in with the digital purchases on PC. (laughs) uh, I played the game on Switch, though, so I didn't get that manual. Um, So just the fact that they have chosen to make this game so available selling the double pack um it goes mm-hmm. on sale very cheap uh, so like more people are going to be drawn into it and i i really think that like you know how you if you look at trophy data for games you'll see that like the majority of people don't beat any game really yeah but you play some games and you're like wow like five percent of people beat chapter one wow that's something i feel like this would be one of those games you want to see what my um percentages for the final achievement in throne of ball oh yes uh four percent four percent that's higher than than i would would expect yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so that that's an interesting little little factoid there and you know who those four percent are those are the top four percent of all throne of ball players right there (laughs) i was just gonna say yeah it's the people that this game was made for those four percent and you know what? Three of those 4% have done it five times. Uh. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, not to, to beat a de- beat the dead horse for the second podcast in a row, but like I just because you're, it's uh, your time on the podcast, this is my experience playing Baldur's Gate 2. I played on story mode. I did not engage with the combat whatsoever because I couldn't. So <laughs> as somebody who does engage with the combat, what are some of the keys to beating this game? Yeah. So as you mentioned up front, I think having that knowledge is sort of an expectation, but um, combat by and large is more about like making sure you can actually hit a guy more so than anything else, removing protections. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost always more about preparation than it is about the actual fight. Like mm-hmm. you will in most cases, win or lose a fight very quickly in Baldur's Gate 2. Like, if you go in with the right buffs and the right spells queued and 
the right contingencies if we're late enough in the game um, on your mages, then you will win with no problem. Uh, if a fight starts to get drawn out, uh, you will almost always lose, is, is my experience, uh, which is mm-hmm. something that I, I have more to say about when we talk about some of the later game fights. Sure. But, um, you know, it, it is at high levels very fiddly and very menu heavy. And to be frank, uh, it's beautiful in concept, but all of that menuing is really a grind. Like you're basically programming everyone. Uh, it's a little too mm-hmm. much minutia for me personally. Um, I'm mostly here for like the narrative and the light tactics. I can hack all of that other stuff, but it's not necessarily what I come to this game for. It is something that, uh, I am, I'm getting through and sometimes it's thrilling uh, when it works, it's very thrilling. Like if you, um, you know, start a really tough encounter, um, and there was one particular boss fight that I think this went extremely well. And it, I, you know, I think is, is hanging up there in some of my top boss fights of, of all time as of this recording that we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, like some of the harder fights just get a little too demanding, especially near the end of it all. But for most of for all of Shadows of Am and most of Throne of Ball, I was having a great time sort of continually adjusting my strategy, figuring out what spells I needed to have on my mages and sorcerer to knock down my uh, enemies and then um, what I needed to do to uh, get my my fighters in the front line in the right place to destroy people. And uh, it's always fun to kit out your your characters with high level gear. And I will say that that is one thing this game has in spades is you can get a bunch of really fucking cool items and artifacts uh, Uh across the board. Great armors, great weapons, all kinds of cool effects, all kinds of cool effects that can be um, combined with spells and skills that you get at higher levels to really interesting um, effect. Um, I think that's one of the things this game does best is it gives you this really fun playscape to create builds with all of the various npcs and of course your player character yeah um i was just going to ask you about that because again builds were not necessary for my playthrough i just kind of like uh picked up that cool loot and like i i totally agree there's there's probably like 50 items in here that would be the item in another rpg right yes yeah. <laughs> ancient legendary weapons of from the heroes of aid of ages past and there's just this game's just full of stuff like that. Yeah. So so you want me to run down a list of a few of my favorites? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I mean, first off, I will I will give Keldorn's Holy Avenger um, the top billing. You know, uh-huh. it, it's not often you find something that's a plus five sword. You know, you you're working in the like plus two range in Baldur's Gate one, um, and then by the end of Baldur's Gate. Uh, sorry, in the, in Baldur's Gate one, in Baldur's Gate two, you know, finding something that's plus five, like that can hit anything. You're you're not going to have anyone resisting the the hit of a plus five weapon. The second thing, Celestial Fury. I mentioned earlier about just going into the right house and knowing the right guy to kill to get the powerful sword. Mm-hmm. This is that sword. Okay. <laughs> um, there, there's just a nondescript house not attached to any quest or anything in uh, the Temple District of Ethkelta. I think it's called the Guarded Compound. You go in there, you fight extremely high level party of of heroes uh one of them is carrying celestial fury it is a katana that will just stun enemies on hit sometimes unresistible very powerful Um, there's there's lore behind that uh sword too it is basically the embodiment of like an a deva which is basically an angel who got so pissed that they turned (laughs) into a sword so they could kill things for all eternity um (laughs) so that's cool 
And finally, my, my third favorite one is the Robe of Vecna, um, which is a faster spellcasting robe. As a spellcasting player character myself, um, what I would do is combine this with the time stop spell. So I could stop time, cast spells in extremely quick succession. If you have the skill greater alacrity, which you get at higher levels, you can cast them even faster. So mm-hmm. basically, stop time, cast five or six iterations of your most powerful damage dealing spell at, at an enemy, and then watch time unfreeze and they immediately disintegrate. Um, <laughs> there's lots of fun things like that you could do in this game. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the items that stood out to me was part of that that manor quest, actually. Um, it was a, uh, I forget the name of it, but it was a flail where a you're flail picking up ages. the different heads. The flail of ages, right. Where you're picking up the different heads that all do different elemental damage uh, or status damage. Uh, and by the end, you can I think you can get like five heads uh, in Throne mm-hmm. of Ball. And uh, it is a, it's just a powerhouse. You're doing all kinds of different damage. Um, and one of the cool things is like, if your character can't use flails, then that thing, it'll probably still be okay, but it won't mm-hmm. be great for you. But your character will find some legendary treasure that will be great for whatever they're specializing in. I think that's one of the things I like best about this is like, no matter what weapon specialization you choose as a fighter, there is something cool you're going to find to use. Yeah. Like, um, you know, there's a bunch of good axes. I mentioned a good katana already. Um, there's uh, a long, there's a bajillion long swords in this game that are good. So yeah. you're you're never going to be starved for that. Um, even like I had Jahira, right, and she as a druid has a pretty limited weapon set that she could use, mm-hmm. right. But you manage to find um, a really good scimitar pretty early on that she can use. It adds an extra attack for her, which as a slow, like generally more tanky character, is a big boon. Um, and then later on, like you'll find a really good plus four quarter staff that can allow her to basically have permanent bark skin, which is an armor spell, um, mm-hmm. you know, adding even more tankiness to her build. Like it's really, there's just a lot of good stuff out there and you could tell that they like, they build or they put certain weapons in this game with characters in mind. Like Keldorn was meant for that Holy Avenger. Um, and I think that's one of the things this game does really well is it makes sure that every person out there somewhere, there is a cool thing for them to find in the world that will make them a throne of ball capable NPC. Yeah. And if, if you have characters that specialize in two handed swords, you're going to be lousy with legendary two handed swords. <laughs> yeah, you really will. They, yeah. yeah. So you just, just pick up all the two handed sword users, just mm-hmm. a straight party of them. You'll be fine. <laughs> so you kind of mentioned um, with casting a bunch of those spells. Um, and this is, it's something that, I was thinking about during Baldur's Gate 1 as I struggled with low-level D&D characters. How do you think D&D translates to video game outside of, like, obviously the the game makes dice rolls and saving throws and stuff a lot easier, but the mechanics of D&D, like having limited spell casting and all of the reasons why you might swing and miss, uh, for example, when swinging and missing isn't something that a lot of RPGs really deal with anymore, I don't think. Yeah, I think, to be frank, I would think of it as an interesting system of constraints more than anything. Mm-hmm. Like, we're, I, it's one of those things where, like, you could obviously design an RPG that's a lot more user-friendly and makes a lot more sense. But if you set out 
to make an RPG with the purpose of, I want this to hew as closely as possible to second edition Dungeons and Dragons, and then also mm-hmm. make it an interesting game. You're putting a really interesting constraint on, you know, how you're thinking about the design space of what you're making with that game. And so to your point, like things like you're rolling to hit, like that is not an empowering thing. That is specifically a disempowering thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also making you think about how you want to design your character and how how they're designing encounters as well. So I would say like in terms of, you know, having a game function as a D&D simulator instead of just like creating a custom engine uh, that is more focused on like a more traditional video game experience as opposed to a translation of a tabletop experience to a video game one. Um, I think it's an interesting project just for that purpose alone. As you mentioned, like there's so much difference between what playing the com- campaign of Baldur's Gate as a tabletop game would look like, which is to say a lot less combat heavy mm-hmm. um, versus what we're getting in this video game. And I think that in its own is is an interesting way to think about like what we're doing here. We're we're constraining we're constraining in either direction, right? We're constraining what this would be from a tabletop perspective by putting it in a video game, and we're constraining what this video game could be by making it hue to D and D. Yeah, it it kind of made me wonder why there's so much combat. Whether it's is is combat combat is probably easier to program and set up encounters than all of the unlimited player freedom that other aspects of role playing would have at tabletop, right? Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or are we putting in a bunch of combat because video games have a bunch of combat and that's what people expect. Um, it, it's just interesting from that perspective. Yeah. Por que no los dos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would say almost definitely both, right? Like it's extremely hard to model like anything that a, a video game player would want to do that isn't just combat, right? Like they're trying to do the best they can with like how many different options and outcomes they have for how you make your way through this main quest in Baldur's Mm -hmm. Gate 2. And I think they succeed in some places and fail in others. Um, But at the end of the day, like you can only create so much content and so much art and so many maps and so many different branching paths and dialogue trees. Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, we don't have a really good dungeon master version of chat GPT on the other side of this thing, right? We have a pre-programmed set of dialogue trees. You know, that the thought had crossed my mind that if there is a use for AI like in video <laughs> games, having a having a, a dungeon master would be would be pretty cool. One that could actually respond to weird ideas that you have. Have you played AI Dungeon? No, never heard of it. Okay. Yeah, it's an app. You can get it on your phone, download it. Um you can give it a bunch of prompts and it'll sort of, you know, walk you through a little dungeon. Um, it is sort of like a version of what you just described. Um, it doesn't have like a set of mechanics around it or anything, but it's a really interesting, like, um, it's a really interesting thing to just play with in terms of you can give it a response to the prompt it gives you and it will react in interesting ways. So gotcha. yeah, check it out. Cool. Fair enough. Uh, well, I think that this is a good time to get into some kind of wrap up thoughts and then, uh, our little housekeeping and then, the spoiler wall for Baldur's Gate 2. So, uh, Brian, who would you recommend Baldur's Gate 2 uh, to in in 2023 with who Baldur's I... Gate 3 on the doorstep? Oh, man. Who would I recommend Baldur's Gate 2 to? Um, all right. I would recommend Baldur's Gate 2 to anyone who has a passing interest in D&D or CRPGs because it is a, a pretty solid exemplar of the combination of the two. 
um, I would say uh, be ready to either try and climb a steep learning curve or go in to experience its story and narrative in the way that uh, you have described, Dave, on story yeah. mode. Mm-hmm. Um, that is who I would recommend it to. Someone who's either looking for a great story or a big old book they can tear into full of rules. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I kind of echo that. Like, I wouldn't even say someone who is wanting to play Baldur's Gate 3 because like you don't have to play these two if we can believe what they say. Um, <laughs> people listening, uh, we're recording this a couple weeks before Baldur's Gate 3 comes out. Um, so I'm kind of guessing, but I have read that it's not a direct continuation of the story, though it is related in some ways. Uh, so yeah, recommend it to people who really love CRPGs and want to go back and maybe you love Disco Elysium and Divinity Original Sin and uh, some of those others, and you want to go back and kind of play one of the OGs, I say, yeah, Baldur's Gate 2 would be a good one. Also recommended for people who just like some D&D-ass D&D adventuring, like dungeon yes. crawling, side questing. It's really uh, top class in this game. So like I said, even though I didn't um, engage with the combat nearly at all, I still had a good time playing this game because I was constantly going through like dungeons and coming up on bosses and seeing new monsters and be like, whoa, that's really fucking cool. So like Mm -hmm. still satisfying in that way, even though like a big chunk of the game and like the gameplay side is the thing that gets me in some of those other games like uh, Divinity Original Sin 2. I love that game for its mechanics mostly. But in this game, even without that, it still held up just fine. I, I think it's a really good game. It's just kind of a, a qualified recommendation at this point in time, I think. Yeah, I would I would add one one uh, group of people that should play this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, fans of the Forgotten Realms. You know, this is probably like the purest distillation of that setting that I've seen in in a video okay. game. It's got all the all the stalwarts. You got your Elminster. You got your Drizzt. Um, right. That's probably not a spoiler. <laughs> I, I think. Driz just shows up. Uh, and again, this is this is all unfamiliar stuff to me as uh, this is my first experience with Forgotten Realms. So um, yeah, before we get into spoilers, um, I want to give you a chance here to plug Pixelated Playgrounds in whatever way you would like. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so check us out at Pixel Play Pod on Twitter. Uh, we'll announce shows there uh, or, you know, of course, any podcatcher of your choice, Pixelated Playgrounds. You, you can follow Josh on Twitter at Moonroof. Uh, he is, that is his video game studio, Twitter. Uh, he's our very own indie developer and, uh, listen to our thoughts on Baldur's Gate two in a couple months, probably because, uh, we're running a bit behind Dave here. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I have, um, lined up the release dates for like the first time in the history of this podcast just to, uh, to get it, get it on there. Um, yeah, again, recommendation for everyone to check out the podcast. If you like tales from the backlog and if you're at an hour and a half into an episode of Tales from the Backlog. I hope you like it. Um, you'll also like Pixelated Playgrounds, for sure. So um, down in the show notes, you'll find links to uh, everything that Brian just mentioned there. But also, while I'm talking about myself for the next 30 to 60 seconds, just go search on the podcast app you're on right now for Pixelated Playgrounds. So Thank you. For Tales from the Backlog, the usual plugs and please... Um, (laughs) I would love to have people join the discord server and come talk about Baldur's Gate. Um, depending on how many people in the server are playing Baldur's Gate three, 
we might have to make a special channel just for it, and I'd be happy to do so. But we do have a loving um, community in there. Lots of amazing people talking about games and whatever media they're into, podcasts, YouTube, whatever. Good group of people. Um, Ways to support the show include leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast app if it allows it, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, and probably some others. But uh, yeah, you know it. If your platform allows it, why don't you do me a solid? And if you would like to support monetarily, patreon.com slash Jackson. Uh, all supporters on Patreon get some bonus episodes. They also get the ability to vote in polls for games to come up on the show. Um, I also have another show. It's called A Top 3 Podcast. It is a simple show. We do top three lists. I think it's a lot of fun, and you might also agree with me. So again, that's A Top 3 Podcast. So Brian and I are going to take a break. When we come back, it is full spoiler time for Baldur's Gate 2. Right, I am back with Brian. We're going to talk spoilers for Baldur's Gate 2 and, of course, the uh, expansion Throne of Ball. And we're going to go like somewhat chronologically. We're not going to do a story walkthrough. So if you want that, this is not going to be the podcast. Uh, that would take hours and hours and hours because <laughs> there is so much shit in this game. But we are going to, going to talk about uh, notable moments and things that stood out to us. So I want to start back at Chapter 2 which we left off in the non-spoiler part, there are a lot of really good side quests in chapter two, um, like dozens of them. So uh, were there any standouts that you think uh, just really like kicked ass? Yeah, I got, I got a few. Um, I would say the one that's jumping out to me first is the, the cult, the eyeless cult. Um, Mm -hmm. So killing the eyeless cult was one of my favorite ones. And I think it was one of the first ones I did actually, uh, right out of the the dungeon because that's where I met Keldorn, my boy, who uh, wielded the Holy Avenger for me for the rest of the game uh, once I got it. But um, really cool quest where you're dealing with a forgotten god and, you know, you you innocuously run into a guy proclaiming uh, to join the cult of the eyeless because the gods have abandoned Faerun and... Uh, all of a sudden, you're on this long, winding dungeon delve through the dungeons into the old city uh, underneath the current city of Ethkelta. And um, yeah, dealing with a forgotten god. It's it's just, you know, things, there's so many quests like this in this game, but it's just like a one thing leads to another, and then the actual cause is something so much cooler than you ever thought it was. Uh, yeah. Did you play that one? I did, and that I wrote it down in the notes, and that I think was the quest that got me to think like, holy shit, these are, this is the good stuff. These are the good side quests. Like the same feeling I got uh, when playing The Witcher 3, actually, for that same reason, like that. Yeah. You get a quest that seems simple. You go there, it's not as simple as it seems, and sometimes it spirals deeper and deeper. Um, this this is one like goes a, a lot game deeper. Of, it's like a whole chapter of Bloody Barons in this game. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this this quest was awesome, and it just starts with the uh, yeah, there's this weird cult. Can you go find out what's going on? Oh, they're down in the sewers. Okay. I've, I've been in the sewers before. I, I'm going to go down in the sewers. I'm going to find them. They're going to 
all right, we'll we'll kill the cult members and then it'll be done. Nope, not even close. <laughs> no, yeah. And I think the really best part about this is like you're you're dealing with a forgotten god to sort of try and sort out what uh or what exactly is going on with this uh eyeless cult, but then it turns out to just be uh a a beholder, right? <laughs> like the 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 eyeless cult god is just a, a high level Dungeons and Dragons monster who has ensnared all of these poor people and told them to gouge their eyes out. Right. Um, it's just really haunting and interesting, and uh, you know, I I love how it just sort of preys on the um, it preys on the people above that are like feeling neglected by um an era that is sort of in a in flux because of. Um, a recent event that happened with divinity. I think it's worth mentioning, you know, we talked, you probably talked about this on your previous podcast for Baldur's Gate one, but the time of troubles uh, shortly, you know, maybe a couple decades precedes the events of this game time of troubles, Mm -hmm. basically being like this gigantic celestial event. I won't go in super big detail because I think I remember your guest at the time uh, explained it in pretty well at the time. Yeah, Shout out to (laughs) Phil for explaining the time of troubles to me because I had no idea. Yeah. 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 Shout out to Phil. Indeed. Uh, He did a really good job with that. And um, so what I will say is like, this is an era that is ripe ripe for people to be questioning their belief in their, their given gods. And Mm -hmm. uh, this beholder has uh, done that to a a very interesting degree. Um, And uh, you get this wonderful quest where you're sort of rooting out the source of that as a result. And it, yeah. And it, it goes like another level deeper than that. When you go down and you find out that there's this, underground temple uh worshiping a different god um a god that is gone but these people have like a a like a binding directive of sorts that that won't let them leave either but there's no god there to worship it's mm-hmm. a whole tragic situation down there yeah it was like the old god of light and like they uh am where am 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 Amuter, Amnuter, something like that. Uh, at any rate, they, as you said, are gone, and the followers are still there because they're bound to be, but they're mm-hmm. like shadows of themselves because they're worshiping a, a nothing, basically. Yeah, and I, I thought it was funny. You basically reenact the ending of Elf uh, to finish this quest <laughs> out. You have to inspire enough belief for a few seconds that the god can like materialize and release everyone, and then you can go. <laughs> that's a really that's a really funny comparison yes uh, <laughs> if we just believe in santa claus he'll come here exactly uh my next one that i thought was incredible um was the planner sphere um basically Dude, you wrote down the same two that i did <laughs> <laughs> well these are really good ones um yeah. the planner sphere is a, a really good a really amazing quest for me for a couple reasons one um you know it, visually it's incredible just in the middle of the slums district of the Kelta, there's this gigantic sphere just chilling there oh um, i didn't do this one i wrote uh, down a different one with a different planar thing okay so yeah right. <laughs> tell so, me yeah, about it the planar sphere is interesting uh, i i did this one I, I was wondering if you you must have partied with valagar then if you did this one but no it turns out you didn't so um yeah so uh it turns out that this sphere was uh a a wizardly sort of stronghold that was piloted originally by one of Valagar's uh, ancestors, his father, grandfather, something like that. And uh, only his bloodline can enter it. So since I had Valagar in my party, I could get in there. And it turns out this um, 
sphere uh, has been traveling the planes uh, haphazardly for a long time now, and it's picked mm. up people from other Dungeons and Dragons settings. So um, oh. if you're familiar with this, uh, you get to see people from um, uh, Dragonlance, uh, which other fantasy nerds may be uh, familiar with, the Knights of Salamnia, uh, and you get to see people from... Um, think there's another uh dark dungeons and dragon setting where these creepy halflings are from that i am not familiar with um and then you eventually travel to the uh one of the hells in the abyss to find a demon heart to power it and get it back to the prime material plane where you eventually end <laughs> up if you're a sorcerer or wizard uh gaining access to the stronghold as your stronghold like uh, i'm assuming oh, you're yeah, a fighter right. so you got Diarnus keep uh, we mm-hmm. didn't mention this in the course of our talking about quests but every single um, class has a stronghold that they can get. And this is the wizard one is the planner sphere, which makes it oh, extra sick. cool. Yeah. Yeah. As far as a stronghold goes, it doesn't get more badass than the planar, the interdimensional planar sphere. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be frank, like, I don't know why you wouldn't be a wizard. If you're, if you're playing dungeons and dragons, anybody can swing a sword. We got that in the real world. You want to cast spells, man. <laughs> True. I it, again, it was a a choice of convenience, and um, with my limited understanding, I understand swinging swords. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I guess uh, you're you're required a, a little more learning curve there. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was that was another one for me. Uh, did you have Did you have one you wanted to mention? Yeah. Um. So like, I remember that quest now because that that party member um, joined and. I was just very focused on something else and they kept pestering me and eventually they left. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm doing other stuff. I'll, I'll catch up later. And then I never did. So, um, there's another party member. I don't know how to pronounce this. Uh, hair, Dallas, hair Dallas, hair Dallas, um, who, uh, is a, a slave and you can save them from their, uh, slavery from this wizard's house. Um, you kill the wizard. Uh, they join you. They ask you to take a gem to their, troop of uh the theater troupe right mm-hmm. and i was like okay that's cool there's a circus in town sure i will uh i'll take the gem and then when you get there uh they open a portal to the astral plane with this gem which is a very <laughs> like ron burgundy like that escalated quickly situation <laughs> <laughs> and um everyone including you gets pulled into like an interdimensional prison um, where you have to fight your way out and freeing other slaves within the prison. The Baldur's Gate has so many interdimensional prisons that you get sucked into where I mean, you're what like, are you, what are you going <laughs> to do with an interdimensional space except turn it into a prison? Honestly. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of these situations where you're like, well, how is the party going to get out of this one? And then <laughs> you fight your way out. Um, but yeah, that those were the two that I wrote down as being like really memorable. Um, I already talked about the one at the, uh, you said the Diarnis, Darnis, uh, stronghold with all the trolls. That was cool. Cause, um, it was still when I was attempting to engage in, uh, mechanics and I was like, okay, find a way to kill the trolls. I mean, even on story mode, you have to find a way to kill them. You can't just, uh, bullshit oh, yeah. your way through it. You gotta but, know the acid or fire thing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that one was cool too, but yeah, this just so many, so many good quests. Yeah, the final one I'll mention is uh, the one I mentioned briefly before is trade trade meet, um, where two genies have sort of taken up and yeah. taken this town hostage, and like <laughs> it's it's just a great little like hour and a half long quest where you you know need to solve this genie issue because like they've taken a town hostage and 
they need you to go to this woods to um, find this Rakshaka, who is like a tiger-headed entity that they need the head of for some reason. I cannot actually remember why. Um, (laughs) And you have to... that that same town is also being attacked by rogue animals because a dark druid has taken over the local druid circle. So you get to, (laughs) I sent, I sent Jahira in there and just had her summon a fire elemental to kill him. Um, Yeah. There's just, it's a great quest. Like it, it culminates in like a one-on-one druid battle. So you need to have a druid in your party or you can quickly tell like the local druid who you can recruit, but maybe don't want to do it himself. It's a neat little, side quest and it unlocks an entire new town for you if you do it yeah i remember the quest with the animals uh the rogue animals but i don't remember didn't remember anything else about the quest it was probably a point where i played it and i was like that was pretty cool and then just forgot to take notes <laughs> you know yeah it, it goes that some aspects of it go quick like it, it's like i said like the whole town and it's you know two major quests to get it opened back up or about an hour hour and a half and then, yeah. like, there are more, but I didn't do those either because I needed to draw the line somewhere and move on to chapter chapter three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eventually, you get to that point, and you can come back later and clean up some of these side quests. Um, but mm-hmm. the story does put you on rails uh, for a while, um, especially later in the game. Uh, there's definite points of no return, for sure. Um, so I kind of talked about that little theme or little uh, current uh, of um, your character dealing with their nature, you know, the nature of them as the ball spawn. Um, and as you, what we left out is as you go through the game, your character starts to have these urges and eventually just transforms into a demon sometimes um, <laughs> seemingly uncontrollably. And then you eventually get to the point where you can control this and you can do it at will. Um, I guess like the question is like, Maybe not this, maybe this time, but definitely your first time. Was this a story that like captivated you from a a plot perspective? So I think more so about the, you know what you mentioned about the, how do they get out of this one this time situation that, that was of more interested. That was of more interest to me than like the wrestling of my player character with their divine heritage and, and the ball spawn and all that stuff. Like I will say what you mentioned is like when your character you know, it happens at a fairly pivotal point. You know, you're escaping from a spell hold. You're being attacked by one of the game's primary antagonists, Bodhi, right? Yeah. That's your first transformation, if I recall correctly. And this is a character who would be way too powerful for you and your party at the time. But you suddenly have this transformation and you become the Slayer, um, which is like an avatar of Ball. So, you know, your your Ball heritage is like getting more powerful or whatever. Your your Highlander right. energy is, is getting up. Um, <laughs> so... Um, I think the Slayer as a mechanic does an interesting thing to reinforce, you know, whether or not you are accepting of your ball spawn heritage or not. Like it is mechanically saying like, Hey, there's a button now in your lower right hand corner where you can turn into the Slayer. Are you going to press it? Uh, you know how powerful it is, right? Will you do that? Mm. <laughs> and, um, so I think that's an interesting thing. Like, I think it's doing an interesting thing with like mechanically allowing you to do that, but it does also, dock your reputation if you do it right so like okay it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you do that enough you will automatically start becoming the quote-unquote lord of murder because your rep will be so low people will just want to start killing you all the time (laughs) gotcha so i didn't do it um partly because again i didn't need to but that was something i was going to ask you is like what are the 
mechanical or story repercussions if you do kind of lean into this? Yeah. So, you know, this game does have an underlying reputation system, right? I'm sure as mm-hmm. like a good person who um, was not on, you know, not wantonly killing people and was completing quests, your rep was probably pretty high. Um, yeah. But if you if you do, if you're an evil party or if you uh, hit that Slayer button one too many times is like a get out of, you know, get out of jail free card or oh shit button, then you will have a low rep and you'll have this sort of slippery slope where you'll slide into like your rep is low. So people attack you. So your rep goes lower. So people will attack you more and, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And so I do think that, you know, the fact that they give you this option and it's powerful. And if you do it, you'll become a villain kind of no matter what is interesting. Um, I think the game doesn't okay with its writing or okay job with its writing about talking about morality and conveying like what being a ball spawn is doing to your player character. But that mechanical side of things, like if you press it or if you, you know, decide to engage with it is a more interesting way that the game is playing with that divine heritage thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering like, cause the story would want you to believe that your character is, um, threatened by what they are uh your party could be afraid of what your character is um but are they ever in any real danger and it sounds like maybe yes danger from out outside people attacking you that way or are they in danger of like you know losing themselves you know so early on when you choose to um enter slayer form you don't have control over your character so right. you can kill your your party members. <laughs> so yes, they they will see you differently too if you choose to engage with that mechanic. Um, you know, uh, they. I think, as I mentioned, I think the game does an okay job portraying how your PC is um, wrestling with like the ball spawnness inside of them. But I think actually the better way it does this is if you have Imowen in your party because you get to see her wrestling with it, and she's like pretty up up front with like what she's experiencing because she's like. You know, she's like six months behind you in terms of like her ball spawn maturity, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm. um, she's like going through the same stuff you were going through in like the end of Baldur's Gate one, um, you know, getting these weird abilities. And then, you know, I'd imagine if we saw this game continue on and she didn't give up her ball spawn essence, uh, which we can talk about later. Um, yeah. You know, she might eventually have like this slayer turn, too. Um, and I think that's interesting because everyone's going down. Every, every ball spawn is going down this path. And it's up to them to choose whether or not they embrace it or or try and deny it or resist it. So mm-hmm. I think it's more interesting as a mechanical thing than it is as like something that's driving the story necessarily. Like obviously it's the central thing that's driving the story is what are you going to do when you get to the point where you can choose to accept or deny the throne of ball. Right. But it doesn't have that much repercussion on your day to day, right? Like if, if we're summarizing extremely briefly, your goals are rescue, rescue Imowen, get your soul back from Irenicus, and then mm-hmm. try and stay alive as all of these other balls spawn try and attack you. And that just sort of ipso facto puts you at the foot of the throne of ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I had just, you know, the, it's an it's it's a byproduct of me playing a good character and me not engaging with mechanics where I was like, well, I wonder what that does, you know, so um, <laughs> there was one point later where you're in a mind flare dungeon and uh, there are these doors that will only open in the presence of a greater being or something like that. And mm. you need to uh, slave collar the mind flares to get them to open the doors. But I killed all of them. 
And luckily the Slayer counts as a greater being. So I oh. turned into the Slayer for that huh. just Makes to open sense. that door. Thank you to the Baldur's Gate 2 wiki people. <laughs> for That's a great that site. Out. I used it a lot on this playthrough as well. <laughs> yeah. That and sorcerers.net. <laughs> yeah. There are some people who have put in tons of work as far as that's concerned. Um, you mentioned uh, the, the, the quest to get your soul back. Uh, so this is like another kind of cool thing. Imowen's dealing with her nature. Like you said, your character is dealing with your nature, but you're also dealing with the fact that you've literally had your souls stolen from you by Irenicus as part mm. of um, his plan, which you'll learn. We'll try to summarize. His plan is for himself and Bodhi to replenish souls that were stolen from them. Is that right? Yeah. So my understanding of the sort of Ironicus backstory is uh, he's basically the divorced billionaire villain. Um, <laughs> he uh, <laughs> he had everything. He was a powerful elf wizard living uh, with the queen elf as his like That's girlfriend, right. basically. And and he he tried he to ascend more. to God, yeah. and that <laughs> yeah, it, they they frown upon that apparently. Yeah, he wanted more, so he was cast out from the elves. His elvendom was removed, and um, uh, because he tried to steal like the soul of all elves to become a god, as you said. Um, so he's like, "All right, well, uh, obviously I don't have that anymore, so I'm just going to try and become a god, however I can." And this ball spawn thing caught his eye, and that's why he has your soul now, and Bodhi has Imowins. Right, and your your character doesn't show a whole lot of emotion like throughout the story. You know, like your <laughs> your character is not like a a fully formed person where like, you're going to really get into their inner thoughts and feelings. You know, you can pick dialogue choices for them and stuff, but you see it in Imowen and how Imowen is understandably struggling with having her soul stolen. <laughs> yeah. that That's a good point is, um, you know, there are sort of like, by typically, you know, generally well-written Bioware responses for a variety of different things in, in Baldur's mm -hmm. Gate, but they're not really reflecting the fact that you're a soulless person now. Um, you know, uh, that just doesn't really come to bear. But to your point, it does in Imowin, which is why I think it's it's nice to have her around. Like, it, um, yeah. it helps sort of ground what's going on for your player character better, um, which is helpful. Um, you know, she's sort of a player surrogate uh, in minor. Yeah, um... And I, I forgot to say earlier, but I did take Imowen in my party once I got her back um, because, and I wanted to ask you about this, at some point, I don't remember if it's in chapter three or chapter four, it is in chapter four because it's in Spellhold, um, yep. uh, Yoshimo betrayed me. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, number one, you didn't have Yoshimo in your party, so one of your other party members? No, no, that, that just doesn't happen. Like there's no betrayal if you don't have Yoshima. Um, he's the yeah. only character that will betray you. Cause he's like, I guess a plant from Irenicus. Right. Um, which is interesting. Like, I think that was a really cool choice. You know, he's the first person that's presented to you and it's almost like too convenient. Like you lose your thief. Um, and then all of a sudden this new one appears and it's like, Oh, <laughs> convenient. Well, come along. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, there is apparently an arc where you can like go and redeem him and bring him back. You um, can in, in throwing a ball. I, I didn't, I've never done that. So I don't know the details, but um, if you did, yeah. As far as bringing him back, I wasn't sure, but you can like set his soul to rest basically. Like you can take mm. his remains to uh, the temple of whatever he worshiped and they will like, um, like I said, they'll, they'll put his soul to rest basically. So good. 
it's your act of forgiveness, I guess. Yeah, it's good to have closure. And I think this game does a really good job with like sort of letting you know where everything lands and, you know, how where everyone ends up, uh, you know, especially with regards to like some of the Baldur's Gate one characters, like you get revisitations from a lot of people from that game. Uh, at least not least of which being Saravok, but we'll, we'll talk about that. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Oh, uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you, this is from chapter two. There was a quest with a bunch of vampires, uh, Hexat and, um, you didn't do it. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, you know, you can only do so much of this game and that is, that is a blind spot for me. I never did the Hexat thing. Um, I saw it. She creepily came up to me in the bar, uh, and I was like, bad vibes. I'm out. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's actually funny what happened with that. So I, I did that quest for a while. You go down into a tomb, um, you release another vampire, basically. Uh, you were tricked by Hexat to uh, do that. And what you're supposed to do is you're p- supposed to put this vampire in, they give you this special bag that's like a vampire carrying case, basically. A vampire bag, okay. Yeah, so you can <laughs> carry them out in the sunlight and shit. It's like those, yeah, like those Trader Joe's totes they sell you except for vampires. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but since I stopped doing the quest there, I kept the bag and it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a container, which you don't get that many of. So I was using this special, uh, vampire sack to carry all the (laughs) gemstones that I picked up. (laughs) That's awesome. I, uh, that is like a very interesting part of this game is like, they clearly knew that inventory management was a bitch in this game. So they were like, well, bags of holding, we got bags of holding, we got uh, ammo belts we got quivers we got um spell scroll cases like yeah. here's here's a solution <laughs> for all of the endless bs that you're going to be toting around and wanting to sell um mm-hmm. and like it's an inelegant solution for an inelegant problem but you know whatever it gets the job done i guess this is probably the biggest area of um clunkiness when playing this game with a controller is inventory even, management. I cannot even imagine. I feel bad yeah. for you just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty rough. I'm not going to lie. Um, so much time <laughs> switching items between characters, opening the bags, closing yeah, the it, bags, it, a whole thing, selling the things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see here. So, spell hold was pretty cool. I kind of just like breezed over it. But if there's anything else about the spell hold uh, chapter, I like that you basically. Um, do a prison riot like you break out all the crazies yeah. that uh live in in spellhold which is basically an asylum for rogue mages and other dangerous individuals uh-huh. and uh <laughs> yeah you use the prisoners to take out Irenicus. i really enjoyed that yeah i i wrote down that um you free the inmates you kick Irenicus's ass but then he beats you and escapes in a cutscene because this is a jrpg apparently <laughs> <laughs> some things cross uh or transcend the east-west divide it seems yeah um, so after this, you go to the Underdark, and I thought this was one of the coolest extended sections of the game. Yeah. There's two ways to get there, apparently. Um, you can steal a pirate ship and go with this dude, or you can just take a portal into the Underdark. The guy with the pirate ship idea seemed like a real asshole, so I didn't do that, <laughs> and apparently I missed out on, like, I just skipped content because of that choice the, so the the pirate ship guy is a real asshole he's like a recurring and I, i'm trying to remember his name <laughs> baldur's gate 2 pirate ship guy 
you have no idea. I, I actually did actually just Google that exact <laughs> thing. His name is Samon Haverian, and yes. he is sort of like the game's shit heel. Um, he he shows up in multiple times. He he shows up twice in uh, Shadows of Amon, once again in Throwing a Ball, just to kind of fuck you over. Um, uh-huh. He'll he'll double cross <laughs> you every single time uh, he gets a chance, and he does so in Chapter Four when you're trying to follow Irenicus. Uh, it's hilarious because like. The options on the table are follow Irenicus to the Underdark through the portal he just walked through, or try and beat him to his destination by sailing a boat back to the mainland. Yes. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> One of these things. So I was like, well, I'm a dumbass, so I'm going in the boat. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is exactly what I did. And I ended up being besieged by um, these, there was a, a ship of interdimensional travelers i'm trying to remember the name of them they are people from uh spelljammer or something like that <laughs> <laughs> and they attack you uh you have a githyanki is what they are yes so you you're attacked by githyanki you eventually uh end up being thrown overboard and you end up in an underwater city of the sauguin which is like some sort of fish people and you go through this whole elaborate side quest where you like get involved in a succession war for the Sagwin, and then eventually you end up in the same exact place as you would have if you just followed Arenicus through the portal. So, yeah, it's like two and a half, three hours of just extra stuff uh, for for almost no reason, but uh, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, the reason <laughs> is more adventuring. More, yeah, exactly. More quests from this, uh, from this, you know, quest design team who they kick ass. So yeah, they, they did a good job. I mean, it was like really roundabout, but they did a good job with it. Um, I guess you do get one thing, you get the silver blade, um, which combined with the silver hilt will eventually allow you to make a weapon that will, uh, have a percentage chance of just killing anything you strike with it. Um, so later on in the, in these games, you get a, a spell or a skill for fighters called whirlwind and then eventually greater whirlwind. And that does 10 attacks per round. So if you have that weapon and you do 10 attacks per round, there's a pretty good chance whatever you're hitting is going to die. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Ooh. But anyway, you um so you end up in the underdark and this this section's really cool. Number 1, it's unfamiliar. You come across all kinds of um species, races that you don't see above ground. Um you you deal with the drow here more than anywhere else basically. Uh you find gnomes, you get captured by mind flayers. It's a whole fucking thing. It takes hours and hours and hours. Um, I think my favorite part of it was integrating into drow society. You yeah. know, like, um, you know, I, I have read the Drizdoer novels back in the day when I was in middle school. And, uh, so I knew what drow society was like, I'm like, I can, I can handle this. Um, and you know, it's like a ruthless matriarchal society where most men are slaves unless they're a wizard. And, um, most of the high-ranking women are priestesses of Loth who just torture people for fun. So mm-hmm. bad, scary place. And like you have to blend in there. And so if you're like a good person, that's obviously not an easy thing to do. Um, but there's a really fun quest there where lots of chicanery takes place. You're talking about the the quest with the eggs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. What did? How did you resolve that one? So I chose to do the favor for the dragon and steal the eggs and give them back to the dragon because I kind of had the feeling like I don't think the I don't think the drow can really take me in a fight if it comes to that. But I this dragon <laughs> looks really badass, and also the dragon's cool, and the a lot of the drow are assholes. So, um, which is apparently a thing with 
kind of like you mentioned earlier with all orcs are evil, the kind of a, another thing with old D and D, right? That it's an archetype. Yeah. All drow are assholes, except Drizzt. He's the, he's the exception. And right. Viconia, I guess. Yeah. So, um, I chose to steal the eggs and there's another choice within that where, well, but before I get into that, what, what did you do in this section? I did the triple cross, right? So I, yeah. I was, uh, yeah. So did we do the same thing then? Yep. All right. Yeah. You want to talk through? <laughs> well, just, you know, um, you had the choice to, um, steal the eggs and give them to someone else, or you, you can actually get, I think you get a second set of duplicate eggs and That's right. <laughs> take everybody out. Um, so the drow in there are trying to summon a demon to help them, um, take the fight i think it's take the fight to the surface right mm-hmm. yeah they, they're basically like in, they're they've been on a stalemate with the uh the elves on the surface so they're hoping this greater demon will help them break the stalemate right and so they're they're going to offer the eggs to the demon as a uh, a payment of sorts so by switching out the eggs with the duplicates uh, the demon gets really pissed off uh, when <laughs> they're summoned for nothing basically so that was that was good. Uh I think the demon kills all of them, right? Yeah, the demon kills both the uh both the parties that were trying to double cross each other and then looks to you and is like, "Well, you're the only one left here. What do you want to do?" And you can just basically, <laughs> you know, you can choose to ask it for a boon and I think I don't know what it gives you if you do that. Or you can just say nothing and it'll just be like, "All right, bye." <laughs> yep. Well, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I did. I dismissed the demon. And returned the the eggs to the silver dragon who teleported me pretty close to the surface, which was good. Same. Yeah. Um, they teleport you pretty close. Uh, I did make a note in here in the space between where they teleport you and the surface. Uh, there's a Demogorgon statue where you can mm. sacrifice an animal. And I, I, I got that like hint that I should do that. And like... I was role playing in a way where I was like, I don't think so. I think I'm good. I'm not going to fuck you, with that. What, what animal would you sacrifice? Like who's carrying around an animal? We're not talking about boo, are we? That'd be. No, they, I mean, um, <laughs> I, I read in the wiki, the way to do it is to summon something and then oh. uh, in front of the statue. But hmm. yeah, I, I saw that it was like, would you like to sacrifice something to the Demogorgon statue? And I was like, I've seen stranger things. I don't think so. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> yeah. Now, funny thing, the Demogorgon comes back in a in a later, well, not later, could be, uh, it comes back in a side quest. We'll put it that way. Yeah. So um, when you get to the surface, then you are kind of on, on the home stretch for the main game. Um, chapter six is like, you just go fight Bodhi. That's it. You're gather it's like Avengers Assemble situation, right? You bring your yeah. Drizzt, you bring your Radiant Knights, you bring your uh shadow uh thieves if you oh, want. Yeah, and, yeah you You're can right. kind of just you can go around all the people you've worked with and be like, Hey, I, I gotta go kill Bodhi, can you help me out? And most of them are like, Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I'll that, that, that's I'll fun. The, I like that. The factions and stuff that you've been working with uh, throughout the game. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, and then you um, you go and learn. We already talked about Irenicus's uh, backstory. So um, cool thing here. I always like it when you when they do this before you fight Irenicus. Uh, you talk to all your party members and you kind of get like their motivation. You know, mm. like a this is here's, for so and so. Yeah, here's why I'm still with you despite all this bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't say this in the non-spoiler section, but, um, I kept Minsk and Jahira in my party and both of them had, uh, their 
um, either love interest or, you know, bonded um, companion killed by Irenicus. So of course their motivations are clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. I I like that too. Um, You know, it's, uh, it's also nice that they have a callback to some of those, you know, classic uh, uh, forgotten realms characters. Like you don't just get Driss at this time, you get his whole party. Like you get a whole slew of characters from those novels along with him, Mm -hmm. Um, which is neat. You know, I think that was a nice touch. So I got to ask you, I obviously didn't fight Irenicus fair. How the <laughs> fuck do you beat John Irenicus? So his fight wasn't too bad. Like the the first, the I guess the final battle wasn't too bad. His first battle where he's out in the in the trees, where it's just him as like a badass mage, that's a mm-hmm. hard battle because he yeah. has a bunch of contingencies. So I I had, um at, till this point, uh, been hoarding items like a fiend. So I had a bunch of scrolls of magic resist. So I utilized those <laughs> okay. in spades. So I, I basically sent a tank in with a scroll of magic uh, resistance uh, that basically nullified most of what he was trying to do. And then this game has this this thing you can do, and I utilized this a lot in Throne of Ball, where you can just run away from a boss and break aggro and quick save, or you know take some time to rebuff up or heal or whatever. Oh, okay. Um, so I I did that pretty frequently. Like if you distract a boss with a summon, you can take your main party away, uh, cheese the fight a little bit, buff up, heal up, and then go back in once you're feeling a little better. And uh, that was kind of the way I got through most of the difficult fights in in the later games. It is through cheese. Gotcha. Because I, I wasn't <laughs> over leveled in this playthrough. I was adequately or under leveled. <laughs> so I had to get creative. Gotcha. And so, like, when you do that, their health doesn't um, regen, no. right? Nope. No. This okay. game is, is persistent in that regard, unless a, unless an enemy has, like, a regeneration, like, aspect attached to them. Like, unless they automatically regenerate as part of their character, like, they're not going to just heal because you're out of battle, you know? Like, things are persistent in that way. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. So that, that was how I did that, like, that fight in the treetops in Chapter 7. But then you go to hell, right? Yeah, a big fake out. Yeah, so they're like, oh, you beat Irenicus. You won, right? No, now you're in <laughs> hell. So he, since he has your soul, you know, you follow your soul down to hell where he ended up. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, then there's this whole like 20 questions of morality that you have to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that was cool how um, you got like stat, like permanent stat boosts by doing this again, story mode. I don't care if I get a stat boost, but for you, a a stat boost is helpful. Yeah. Especially for my sorceress being immune to normal weapons was very nice. Hell Um, yeah. Yeah. That was one of the ones you could get. Um, there's one where you can get, um, buffs to like saving throws also very helpful. Um, there's stat boosts or debuffs depending on what your, your choices are. And all in all, like, you're feeling a little more godly by the end of this. And uh, also the second Irenicus fight, he is not as hard like the He has some ads with him. He has some demons. But mm-hmm. like, as I said, you can prepare for this fight. You could take out those demons pretty quick. And then he is basically just a lesser version of what you faced in the treetops. So it's not as bad. I would rather face five, you know, five, seven difficulty guys than one ten difficulty guy, you know. Interesting. That kind of game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't have much to say about this, this fight, of course, except that I had to do it three times because my game kept crashing during the final <laughs> cutscene. 
So thank you, Switch Ouch. version of Baldur's <laughs> Gate 2. But you get the 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 cutscene of uh, Irenicus being stranded in the sea of lava is uh, pretty satisfying after him being who he is through the whole game. I am I'm a little surprised they didn't bring him back at all in Throne of Ball. You know, like there's so much playing around in hell and planes and yeah, dimensions. True. Like like I feel like there was an opportunity there, but either way, um, it's a fitting end for a true bastard and a fantastic voice actor. <laughs> Of course that's not the end because and i'm again thankful for uh for phil on the Baldur's gate one episode explaining um who alundo is and his prophecy and that's the right. infinite uh possibility for storytelling that they can do because uh, alundo said so yeah that's right uh the lord of murder shall perish but in his doom he shall spawn a sp- spawn a score of mortal progeny chaos shall be sown in their passage so saith the wise alundo Mm-hmm. Um, I think every every Baldur's Gate podcast has to feature that line, so there it is. There we go. Um, okay, <laughs> check. This podcast um, is allowed to continue. Yeah. All right. Um, so yeah, Throne of Ball is all about finding these ball spawn um, and basically killing them because they're going to kill you. Yeah, it's it's a Highlander situation, right? So yeah. it basically opens, and there's uh, there's the five, right? The Council of Five or the. Uh, the, there's five big bad ball spawn that stand between you and the throne of ball. You don't know who they are, but one of them attacks you pretty much at the beginning of the throne of ball. And uh, she's a pushover. I don't even remember her name. Um. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, I, I had written the name down, Ilicera. That sounds right. Yeah. And then you go to the city uh, where Gromnir has gone mad. And then there's the giant Yagashura. And, uh, Gromir was cool because it reminded me, did you read The Wheel of Time by any chance? I haven't. I watched the Amazon series, uh, okay. the first season of it. So <laughs> They even feature this in the first uh, season of the show. Uh, in that game, all men who can do magic eventually go crazy. Mm. Um, and this uh, ball spawn, Gromnir, reminded me of the men in The Wheel of Time uh, mm. who can use magic because he's yeah. just, fuck, he's just a madman. Yeah, he is. He's he's a, a general, but kind of a douche, and he just sort of is holed up in the city, and he's letting everyone in the city die because he doesn't want to have the siege broken or surrender or anything. Yeah. So, yeah, he's being sort of urged on by uh, this other uh, character. What's his name? Melisandra or something like that? Uh, Melisan, uh, I think. Yeah, so Melisan, who, you know, is just sort of... Uh, sort of an advisor sort of figure at this point. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, Yagashura, who is a fire giant ball spawn. You know, I think this is interesting where they're they're pivoting to like making powerful entities in D&D combine with being a ball spawn to make them like uber powerful. Like, mm-hmm. oh, what is a what does a fire giant ball spawn look like? Well, it's Yagashura and he's basically immortal. Um, he cannot be damaged. So you need to figure out like, all right, how can we damage this guy? Um breach spell doesn't work i'll give you that much um (laughs) so you have to go through this elaborate quest where you figure out the source of his imperviousness uh which is pretty cool i think this is one of the better ones in throne of ball yagashura's little line yeah um 
trying to remember the dungeon. Is is that the dungeon? No, that's not the dungeon where you have to swim through all those holes. The fire giant, uh, like palace the march- that you yeah. go through. Yeah, it's the marching mountains where you're up in this like fire giant temple sort of thing, mm-hmm. and you find his heart, which is removed from his body as part of his like mother's plan to make him immortal. Yeah, um, who's like a witch or something like that, and eventually you sort that out, and then. Once you do that, he's a pushover too because you're a god. Um, that's the funny thing about this is like almost all the battles at this point for me became trivial because I gained the time stop spell. Um, okay. So <laughs> like there there were like the funny thing about Throne of Ball is like almost everything in it is easy until the very end. Um, at least it was for my character because I like apparently jumped the power curve because of my build for a short amount of time. And then it mm. like caught up with me in a big bad way. Interesting have to um to hear about that when we get to uh the end i guess i want to put a pin in the um killing the ball spawn though because for me like the the highlander situation as you put it is is cool in like a a fantasy way but i actually really liked the story part of uh throne of ball where you're learning about saravok saravok comes back and then Mm -hmm. your own character's backstory um so Saravok, the villain of Baldur's Gate 1, um, is brought back here. In in between going to these places to kill the ball spawn, you go back to this like pocket dimension. It is sort of your it's your version of Ball's plane of the abyss, right? Like yeah. since you are a piece of the essence of Ball, you have a piece of his level of the planes of the abyss. And it, it seems like a almost like a training or like a proving ground kind of thing for your character. Like in order to progress, you need to go through these trials basically um, to, I don't know, get your character ready to take the throne or whatever the fuck decision you're going to make. Right. Mm-hmm. But Saravok is in here and Saravok was a real dick in the first game. <laughs> but one thing I thought was kind of cool is that by the time Saravok comes back, uh, he's Saravok is small potatoes compared to basically everything that's happened in Baldur's Gate two. So when mm-hmm. he came back, I wasn't like you motherfucker. Like I was at the end of Baldur's Gate one. I was like, I was loser. like <laughs> yeah, uh, you're back. All right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah. And, and they, they did a lot of interesting stuff in those little like trials that you were mentioning. Like, they did this thing where they like reversed the roles of you and Saravok. And they were like, what if Saravok was the one that Garion right. took as his ward? And then they did a really stupid one where they asked you to confront your innocence. Um, and I was like, well, Hey, I'm your innocence. Don't you want me back? And you're like, no, <laughs> do I <laughs> want to, do I want to relinquish all of the knowledge and power I've gained? Fuck no. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but there, there were good ones too. Like, um, I think these these trials, I think four out of five of them were good. Um, the well, three out of five. I, uh, the Cyric one was probably the best one, in my opinion, because you're literally face to face with your other god of your other evil god counterpart, Cyric, the god of death, I think. And um, so that was neat because you're like literally now palling around with the Pantheon. And then there was the one where you had to confront your own essence, which is the Ravager. Is that the one where, like, you're basically, you're fighting dark you, you know, like dark there, Link? <laughs> oh, that, 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 that was that. That's actually the, uh, the, fir- 
either first or second one, but yeah, no, is um, it? that that one was good too. Um, I found that one to be pretty easy, but um, yeah, that the dark you party was a good one too. Uh, I like that one just because that that was part of the one where they did this the, the place swap. Um, mm-hmm. the, you know, the old parent trap ball spawn situation, um, <laughs> of course, but yeah, no, the last one is, was the, the fight with the ravager. The ravager is basically like the, the baddest version of the slayer. And that okay. fight is impossible. Like this is, is the it? one, that you, <laughs> it's the one you're doing right after, um, killing the last ball spawn that remains before you have to go to end game and that's mm-hmm. that this is one of the two fights in the game where i had to bump the difficulty down and just uh go to easy to to beat it um gotcha because it was extremely difficult like they they just give this guy a whole lot of weapons and it just shreds your party interesting yeah i i just must not have made note of that because again story mode probably kind of all blends together you know <laughs> yeah and i definitely got to a point in throne of ball where like the fact that I was just not a part of combat and, uh, you know, mechanics in general was kind of wearing on me. And like <laughs> the fact I was just basically reading a book and I'm nearing was- on hour 40 of that book. Yeah. I'm kind of like, book. okay, I'm ready for this to be over, uh, by yeah. this point. And it's again, a book that's punctu- punct- a book punctuated by really poor cutscenes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, little, little uh little dudes exploding into uh bits of uh blood and viscera yeah, giblets yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i i did like the um the humanizing of saravak and finding out the backstory um and you know the 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 situation they put forth where very easily your your situations could have been swapped and do you have any empathy for him because of uh knowing this mm mm-hmm. mhm yeah, it's interesting. I I think it was a it was an interesting idea. Um I didn't take Saravak with me so that I could explore that relationship anymore. Um I me didn't either. need him. I didn't need him, <laughs> you know. I I already had a two-handed sword user and it was one that could use a plus 5 weapon that I already had, so done and done. Mm-hmm. Um But nice that they give you the option. Yeah, I didn't take him with me either, partly because um I was I was having a good time with my party, basically. Yeah. And well, at this point, like I'd be surprised to know that a lot of people switch their party up and throw in a ball because, you know, unless you're keeping a lot of extra magical equipment around, like you're probably pretty set in your ways at this point, you know? Yeah. And you have the option to pull any character, um, dead or alive, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. from uh, one of the minions that's in this little pocket plane. So like yeah. they give you a list of like 25 characters that you could choose from. And I was like, well, I'm. I'm just going to keep the ones that I've had this whole time. Plus I'm on story out. mode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're already kitted out. We we got a thing going. Let's just yeah. keep it going. Yeah, exactly. I know we, we skipped over three of the ball spawn or four of the other ball spawn. Did we want to touch on them or at least I have a favorite that I wanted to talk about? Yeah, sure. I don't have much to say about them. Yeah. So the, the one I wanted to call out just for being probably the best boss fight in the series is Sendai. So okay. Sen- Sendai's Enclave, you know, uh, this is the one where you're going into, um, you go into a forest, it's innocuous enough, but then very quickly you discover that it's not what it appears. You go into an underground area and you find out that this drow priestess is one of the ball spawn. Drow priestesses are extremely powerful. Um, and this fight is just incredible. Um, when you eventually get to her after probably one of the better dungeons in the series as well, you fight eight different iterations 
of her in succession without a break. And each different one, um, you know, once you defeat one, more drow soldiers will pour in to try and like uh, aid her. And you're sort of doing this simultaneous like crowd control and focused fighting on the main boss. And it's just like probably the best tactical experience in the entire series from my perspective. Um, cool. It's a fantastic boss fight. I had to use everything in my arsenal to do it. I feel like I was resurrecting all my characters like five times throughout the course of the battle. It was like a war of attrition that I felt like was actually doable and winnable as opposed to one that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. And it was awesome. Like I was I was in that part of like where I, I had jumped the power curve, but I was still just I was riding the wave. You know, I, I hadn't yet <laughs> fallen. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, 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 we talked about, um, most of the ball spawn at this point, you know, the, the first pushover one, Sendai, um, you mentioned the one where you're diving through the, the tunnels, Absigal, who is a dragon ball spawn, which is a badass idea at least. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick about just that, that boss fight. I mean, like, obviously I didn't have that experience with it, but the, I love it when you have that kind of boss fight, especially in a tactical game whether a turn-based game or something like this right i love it when your tactics and whatever they've programmed the boss to be are on equal footing basically Mm -hmm. and you need like you said everything in your tool set to get through it it's how i felt about the final boss in chained echoes which is why i love Mm -hmm. that so much that game feels like it's balanced to a razor's edge you know like i don't know how that developer did it but it is balanced within an inch of its life. And yeah. uh, I think that's one of the things that makes it as good as it is. Um, Baldur's Gate 2 does not always feel that well-balanced, <laughs> or at least Throne of Ball doesn't. Like, I think to a purpose, it makes you feel really powerful at times, and then like you're really running into an impossible challenge at others. But there's something to be said for a game that's making you really eke out every win, but knowing that there's a way to do it. You know, Sometimes that's just not the case in Baldur's Gate 2. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> But cool that you got that experience there. Um, you mentioned um, the dragon ball spawn. Again, fire giant ball spawn. Now like the ultimate, right? A fucking yeah. dragon ball spawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's a cool idea. Um, and it, it is sort of like, it, one would Im- initially think that it is lore inconsistent because this is obviously a mature dragon, meaning it's hundreds, if not thousands of years old. But mm-hmm. um, they did also mention that Ball had gone down before the time of troubles because he foresaw his own death. Um, so, you know, I, I guess technically it's not more inconsistent. So cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it, it made for this, this nice encounter, which I liked and this dungeon, which is the most fourth wall breaking area of all of uh, this ball spawn saga. Um, because you end up running into a party of low level adventurers in this dungeon and you oh, can right. send them out on a petrified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> I really like that, that encounter. Like, you know, you've gone full circle where you used to be the one doing the fetch quests and now you're sending people on them. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Good stuff. Um, I, I thought this dungeon was annoying because of all the diving and, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. And part of it was also my own fault. Um, because there was a, a path in one of those underground caverns that leads to the petrified party um, that I just didn't see that there was a path there. So I spent probably a half hour diving through these tunnels, just scouring the other rooms. And then eventually (laughs) I checked the guide and I saw like the zoomed out picture of the map. And I was like, ah, shit, 
Yeah. Yeah. Just like there's usual. A, there's this really nice feature in the PC version. I don't know if this also exists in the Switch one where you can go to the map screen and it'll show you all of the walkable areas on the map and highlight yeah, them well, blue. Yeah, I like that. But not if you haven't uncovered the fog of war, I don't think. Yeah. Well, I guess you just yeah. have to sort of see the blue receding into the fog, but yeah, I get what yeah, you're saying. Right. That's not yeah. always obvious, <laughs> especially as, as muddy as some of these cave areas can look. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What did you think of the other, um, the other ball spawn, the fifth one, Balthazar, who, you know, I wrote this down as being notable because they seem to have, well, they at least say they have good intent. Yeah, it's the only other or the only lawful good ball spawn you encounter, right? Like this is mm-hmm. a ball spawn who like recognizes their own taint, uh, which is what they keep calling it. Um, and they're like, well, I'm going to do the only thing I can. I'm going to um, get as powerful as I can and absorb all the essence I can and then off myself. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting uh, just because it's like so puritanical and one minded and, you know. Uh, it is exactly the lawful good interpretation of what a ball spawn would be, right? Like, yeah. I think that's kind of what they're doing with this game is they're single-mindedly letting letting you carve a linear path through a bunch of different versions of you. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, seeing how they're all grappling with the same thing that you are. Um, no one no one can predict how the player character is um, going to react or what character they've built, but they can give you the opportunity to see a bunch of different iterations. And I think Balthazar, as you said, like as a character, it's one of the more interesting ones, but um, maybe not fully fleshed out. I think most of the characters in Throne of Ball are pretty paper thin, even Sendai, unfortunately, pretty terrible characterization. But Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, like it's an interesting idea. And I think given more time and if, if Balder, if Throne of Ball had actually been as the developers had later intended or later regretted not doing uh, become Baldur's Gate 3 instead of just an expansion to Baldur's Gate 2 we would get a lot mm-hmm. more on each of these guys like we would get a you know chapter of Shadows of Om um level quest for each of them instead of a dungeon and a you know a battle you know yeah yeah agreed I guess before going to talk about the the end um, there's some side stuff that you can do in in Throne of Ball including wrapping up some character side quests. Uh, this is where I finished Nira's quest. Have you ever taken Nira with you? No, no. No? Please so, tell me. Yeah, so Nira is a wild mage, and throughout Baldur's Gate 1 and Baldur's Gate 2, um, they are being hunted by these red wizards, uh, these wild mage hunters. And you have some quests throughout like the main game in Baldur's Gate 2 where they're just hounding all the wild mages there's a sanctuary for wild mages that the red wizards attack Um, they take people captive you go free them and then finally in throne of ball you can go uh kill the leader of the red wizards Um, and it it's cool because it turns out the leader of the red wizards is also a wild mage Hmm. but um she lives in this like protected castle where she basically because the wild mages can't control their magic that's like the whole thing they're a danger to society kind of um so they kind of stick together uh, there's a quest in Baldur's Gate 1 where you meet an old wild mage which is notable cuz they don't grow up they they kill right. them they they usually they die. accidentally <laughs> kill themselves um but this one lives in this castle which is protected uh, so that when they have these wild surges no one gets hurt no one knows and also they're leading this um, 
made this wild mage hunting faction. So I thought that was cool and a little bit of like real world parallel to leaders who oppress people when they're also, you know, not so different themselves, you know? Oh yeah, totally. It's, it's projection, right? Like, yeah. um, we, all of our, all of our most, uh, <laughs> all of our most venal and corrupt politicians are at the end of the day, trying to root out the powers that they absolutely and positively embody themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it is, uh, it, it, it is interesting, you know, look in a mirror, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was, um, of all the people to kill in throne of ball, that was one of the more satisfying ones. Um, and another mage fight, which I imagine is pretty difficult. <laughs> yeah, I, I never have uh, done that one, but it's, in, it's an interesting sounding side quest. Um, I can't say I necessarily have another Baldur's Gate two playthrough in me anytime soon, <laughs> but, um, I'll keep it in mind. Yeah, uh, <laughs> for sure. Um, there's another notable one, uh, Watcher's Keep, which mm. you get, you can go there anytime, I think, like pretty early on in the main game, you can go to Watcher's Keep. And this seems like an analog to Durlag, Durlag's Tower from Baldur's Gate 1, which I fucking loved. It was my, mm. one of my favorite parts of that game. Um, yeah. Did you do Watcher's Keep? I've done it in the past. I did not do it for this playthrough. Um, I'm saving it uh, as a refresher for myself before I uh, podcast with Josh. (laughs) Oh, sick. Okay, cool. So Um, uh, yeah, I I know enough to be dangerous about it though. Um, Okay. (laughs) So uh, I was planning on doing it and I was um, going to go do it because I was like, well, I'm going to go beat the game. Uh, I love Durlag's Tower, so I want to go see the version of it in this game. But my game kept crashing uh, inside of it and the first time it crashed, I had not saved in a long time. Oof. And I went back and played a little bit more and it crashed again. And I was like, okay, I'm not doing this. I'm not, uh, it's just the fates say no. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I guess I can give my, my brief overview of it, but yeah, it's a sure. really, really great dungeon sort of five levels with varying, it's it, as you said, a lot like Durlag's Tower. Each one has a very interesting theme. You know, you're going from like dimension hopping to solving elemental riddles to, um, you know, learning the history of the place and who's resided in it. And at the end of the day, uh, what is actually being watched, um, which is to say uh, a great evil, which is to say the Demogorgon. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so Damn, you, I should you have do... seen that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a fight at the bottom with the Demogorgon, um, which is apparently very difficult. I've never um, done it. You don't have to do it. You can win the, the dungeon by, you know, making uh, or, you know, reinforcing the bind or the wards that are keeping the the great evil at bay or you can fight it and apparently that fights quite hard so yeah uh i'll let you know how it pans out if i eventually do it <laughs> yeah so i'll be sure to listen to your uh to your episode when y'all do that yeah listen to our episode where i say i still haven't beat the demogorgon <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i guess i guess we're just at the um at the end here is there a special strategy or special uh, experience fighting Melisan at the end yeah, so maybe we should would just preamble that with like at the end of the day we mentioned she was like an advisor to people uh earlier but she was the final member of that council of 5 Ballspawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the the biggest baddest one and she was like a priest of of priestess of ball rather and her goal is to just take over and become the lady of murder. Um and yeah, just one it, she is the entirety of chapter 10, right? So you you kill the ravager, you go to the throne of ball, which is a its own plane, and it's just one long boss battle. It is nearly impossible to my regard. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, my strategy for this was 
after each phase, it's a four phase battle, I think, where there's, yeah. you know, four different locks on the outside. And then finally you kill Melisande in the middle. But my strategy was break aggro, cheese the wish spell until I could replenish all of my spells because I have exhausted everything just getting through one phase of it. Mm-hmm. Quick save and click quick load if anything went awry. And then, um, you know, just power my way through this encounter by encounter. Um, I think I was underleveled, which is why I had to do all of this chicanery to make it actually work on easy mode for myself. <laughs> but what, um, what level were you at at the end? I think most of my characters were like early twenties, perhaps. Uh, yeah, maybe, 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 maybe high teens, early twenties in, in that range, depending on your class. Um, and yeah, uh, it's just really hard. I, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't, uh, begrudge the game this cause I think they were expecting you to do a bit more hoovering of side quests than I did. Um, and that's fine. You know, if I bet you, if I make my way through watcher's keep and take another run at this, perhaps I'll be in a better place for it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I wanted to get this game. I wanted to get to the end of it so that I could one, do this podcast, but two, just so I could see credits. And I think, um, to your point about a game meeting you where you're at, this is a game that really doesn't want to meet you where you're at if you don't want to do everything <laughs> in it to see the credits. Uh-huh. Um, so, or, or, you know, maybe I'm just bad at it. I don't feel like I'm bad at it, but, um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> who knows just, just from my, you know, my experience in the first game, the final chapter or so of the first game i thought was really really difficult so i can only imagine when they're like okay this is the final boss it's going to be the most difficult thing uh it's just going to crush you yeah to your point like you know uh, listening to your podcast about final fantasy 6 the other day right like mm-hmm. this is this is a time-honored trope of like them putting just the ball crushing difficult thing as the final boss because like for one like if you made it that far they know you're committed and you may actually spend the time to you know eke out those extra levels that are going to make this doable for a normal human um mm-hmm. and on the other side of that like they do want it to truly feel like a, a triumph um i think i just like the perhaps this is going to sound controversial but i i like the souls model where they make it doable no matter your level as long as you're you know able to do it in the hands and it, you know i actually don't know if i agree with that either now that i think about it um, to to an extent, yeah. There's a couple of bosses in the Souls series, uh, in Sekiro in particular, that just take it too far uh, with agreed. that. For yeah, sure. Sekiro in particular. Um, if, yeah, I, actually, I, I recant that entire statement now. I would rather <laughs> out. I would rather outthink a problem than outmaneuver it with reaction yeah. time. But that you know, you're in a game like this or in Final Fantasy VI, thinking only gets you as far as your stats will take you to some sure. degree, right? That's a good Which way is to why it. when we talked about the final boss of Chained Echoes, if you get to the final boss of Chained Echoes because you're on such a rail with your progression in that game, you'll you'll have the stats to beat it. You have to get the strategy yourself. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Like I think that's probably the nice um the nice middle the, the nice middle ground there, right? Like they're yeah. giving you all the tools. It's up to you to put them together. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I just didn't have all the tools quite yet, perhaps. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't have all the tools in like chapter five of Baldur's Gate <laughs> one. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you have a choice at the end. Um, 
You can surrender your ball spawn essence, uh, which will uh, destroy her, but you will become uh, mortal. Or you can steal Imowen's essence. She will uh, offer it up. I can't imagine many people take up her offer, right? Mm. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Because I didn't. I I personally uh, decided to forego the throne. That was a thing that I just felt like my character would not do. They would not take the the throne of ball, you know? Right. Well, yeah, that's the other option. You you don't have to surrender your ball spawn essence. You can just take the throne yourself, of course. But mm-hmm. yeah, my character not, and I'm definitely not going to take someone else's soul instead, uh, even though Imowen like kind of hesitantly, but also is like, I, I guess like if, if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And it's nice that like that's an option that's there because it's a lot it's consistent with like the lore of the game and the fact that she is also a ball spawn. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to your point, I can't imagine that most people do that. That would be weird. <laughs> yeah. So I, I chose to surrender the essence, which makes your character mortal, but like man, your character's been through so much, like let, let, let them rest. Let, let them rest. rest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, after you do this, I think it's it's funny when games do this. Just talking about Final Fantasy VI, Final Fantasy VI does this too. They do a like uh, in the movie credits. This is what happened with this character. This character grew up to become a football coach and won the state championship. Yeah, <laughs> I always think about this in terms of Animal House, where they're like the uh, oh, John right, Belushi yeah. like grew up to be a uh, a senator or something. Like yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Minsk uh, became a senator. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Minsk went home and uh, took Boo with him, of course, and yeah, became a senator of wherever he's from. Um, (laughs) It kind of interesting. uh, Anomen was in my party. Anomen is a cleric and like a a very devout uh, religious. Well, clerics, I guess, are are that way. But uh, Anomen had a crisis of faith after seeing all of this, which makes a whole lot of sense. uh, I would based on what they saw. Yeah, how can you really respect gods after being in the company of one and then like seeing all the crap you got up to? Um, yeah. So yeah, I hear that. Um, uh, also, Jahira is another one. Uh, it says that Jahira left the Sword Coast and never returned because she was so shaken by everything that had happened to her, which again makes a lot of sense. Yeah, boy, I had a, I had, a, I had some better uh, endings than you did. You got some dark ones. Yeah. Well, maybe. I mean. Who knows how many results there could be? I don't sure. know if it's based on your reputation or if you did. I mean, I did the side quest to cure Jahiro when she got cursed. So yeah, at least she there lived. was that. <laughs> um, I guess Nira had a happy ending. She traveled around uh, continuing to kill uh, red wizards and helping out other wild mages. So that's a happy ending. Yeah, uh, the I will talk about the three that I had that you didn't, which are Eri, Keldorn, and Valagar. Um, sure. Eri continued to adventure. Uh, she basically just went around being an abolitionist, uh, which is pretty cool. Okay, hell yeah. She eventually settled down and became a high priestess. Keldorn uh, was slain on the battlefield, but ascended into heaven to stand at the right hand of Helm. So okay. probably about as good <laughs> as he could, or sorry, right hand of Torm. Probably the best thing that he could ask for. Mm-hmm. Valagar, uh, probably the best uh, ending epilogue story uh being the hater of magic that he was because of his magic laden ancestry uh it assumed the title of chief inspector in uh, Ethgalta, so he became a cop but um <laughs> he basically uh, rooted out the corruption in the city and uh, became a pretty effective leader and his son 
um, actually ended up becoming the head of the cowled wizards, which, uh, you know, being a hater of magic is a pretty interesting thing. And he was, uh, an agent of reform within that organization. So, uh, oh. hope for the future, I guess. It's, there's a, that was a bit of a roller coaster. He became a cop, but then he actually fixed the city and then his son became, you know, the, the wizard hated catchers. thing. Yeah. And then they helped, they, they helped too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just kind of weird. Like, uh, it's like Harry Potter in, uh, in brief with that whole story yeah. there. Um, exactly. Yeah, interesting stuff. Valagar, you know, I probably in like one of the better NPC stories, I think of the, of the game. I liked his, it was good. Cool. Yeah, I I don't remember. They're the one who did the the giant sphere quest, right? Uh, his was the he was the guy whose father was in the planner sphere, right? Yeah. So I met that character, but then did not really mess with them at all. Yeah. So yeah, glad well, to know. You know, on your on your next playthrough of this eighty hour exactly, game, yeah. you can just take them along. <laughs> when I jump right back into a replay of Baldur's Gate two, for sure, as as we uh, all will. Yeah. Um, I, I know I have another three hours of podcasting in me about it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I, I guess just to wrap this up, like, you know, I'm glad I played this, uh, even if it's not, I mean, I, I'm, I'll catch the references that Baldur's Gate three will throw. I'm sure there will be stuff and I'm, I'm glad I'll catch them, but I am glad to have played these two games, uh, basically to have this kind of just, just epic adventure under my belt. It's, it's, yeah, I'm glad that they're available on Switch because I would not have played 80 or 90 hours of Baldur's Gate on my computer. I just wouldn't have. Um, so being able to play them handheld and like I said, the Baldur's Gate 2 was basically an interactive book uh, the mm-hmm. way that I played it. So having that on Switch was really helpful. But yeah, definitely glad I played this. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, I'm I'm glad that I finally have the catharsis of finishing this series, the Ballspawn yeah. Saga. Um, that was what I'm bringing to this as a first time, uh, for me and, uh, boy, uh, it was worth the ride. You know, this is, uh, interestingly enough, a game that I played in a big part over the course of my paternity leave with my second child, which is probably yeah. the only reason I was able to get through it in this day and age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was sort of nice having something comforting like that to go back to and, um, make my way through. So, yeah. And thank you for inviting me, me on to talk about it because, uh, Lord knows, uh, you don't often get a chance to talk about this game for three hours. Of course. Well, three-hour podcasts are kind of my thing on the show. <laughs> so um, I appreciate you taking the three hours and coming on here. You know, when by when we uh, connected um, via friend of the show, uh, John, for Gaming in the Wild, I feel like it was only a matter of time before we had you on the show. So it was a perfect game for it. And yeah, again, thanks so much. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, again, yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, we'll do it again. Of course. Yeah. And uh, to everyone listening, thank you for sticking it out to almost the three hour mark, depending on, you know, where we are after I cut out that long internet uh, problem I had and (laughs) add in music and stuff. But uh, this has been a long one. So if you're here till the end, I appreciate you uh, as always. And yeah, thank you everybody for listening. Check down in the show notes once again for links to Pixelated Playgrounds, a podcast I highly recommend. And tune in next week for the next game to come out of the backlog.